Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, the place where two friends torture each other with cursed books. Last episode, we explored the philosophy of bone smashing. Today, we contemplate consciousness, belief, energy, quantum field theory, the universe, and humanity's transcendental place in it. That's right, we're firmly back in woo-woo territory. Robert Anton Wilson, born Robert Edward Wilson in 1932 in Brooklyn, New York, studied electrical engineering and mathematics without receiving a degree, edited the Playboy magazine's forum section, smoked marijuana, enjoyed mescaline, was a Discordian saint, knew Terence McKenna, and wrote 35 books, among many other things. One of these 35 books was Prometheus Rising, this episode's subject. Starting life as a PhD thesis for an unaccredited Californian alternative university, Wilson decided to modify this work to appeal to a wider audience, publishing it in 1983 as Prometheus Rising. In brief, he blends Timothy Leary's eight-circuit model of human consciousness together with Alistair Crowley's Thelema, Alfred Koshibsky's General Semantics, Yoga, Quantum Pseudobabble, and a Questionable Biology. And what's the result? Among other things, a justification for why he thinks that in 2028 we'll be a massively interplanetary species who live forever, can faith heal, remote view, reprogram our psyches, and unlock the hidden potential within our own DNA. Wowee. I'm excited. So strap a seatbelt around each of your eight circuits of consciousness. It's going to be a wild ride. Enjoy. What were we saying before? Oh, yeah. Robert Anton Wilson is such a cooked cunt. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> to sum it up. <laughs> Not only is he on another planet, he's he's very proud about being on another planet. He was beyond cooked. He was the most cooked he's, I've ever read. <laughs> he's like a much less moralistic, <laughs> smarter, and better written Terence McKenna. Yeah, he's, I'd a, say way, that he's a way better Terence. There's... There's way less overlap between the two than I would have, than I kind of expected. I expected them to be pretty similar, unfairly, it seems, now in retrospect to Robert Anton Wilson. No, not unfairly. I think they were friends. They at least knew each other because on YouTube, oh, okay. I, I searched, uh, I was looking for just video clips to hear what his voice was like. Mm-hmm. And uh, What is his voice it, like? He's, uh, and they're like, well, the videos that I was watching, he was probably in his 50s. Middle-aged American dude, pretty normal. <laughs> he was not not like Terrence, but yeah, there's a video of him and Terrence hanging out, and uh, they're like going around to like an observatory uh, in uh, like near the Golden Gate Bridge, and they're talking about the implications of astrolabes and the effects that they had, like how the astrolabes gave like the Europeans all this naval power and stuff. I think that's what they were talking about. And oh, Robert okay. Anton Wilson actually won, and I think won some fairly prestigious sci-fi awards because he's written a bunch of sci-fi. <laughs> Illuminatus. Illuminatus. There are a few Illuminatus books. He keeps talking about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A trilogy, in fact. <laughs> um, yeah, he wrote like thirty books. <laughs> Fucking hell! <laughs> Prolific. Yeah, he was really I mean, interesting. If if they're of a similar quality to Prometheus Rising, then that's, that is an achievement. Prometheus Rising was much better than I expected it to be. 
I don't know. I I have a mixed relationship with this book. Because <laughs> <laughs> on the one a hand, a mixed relationship. Well, did you know anything about Robert Anton Wilson before going in? No, absolutely nothing. Hmm. How did so how this did this book's your it? fault. You were yeah, the one who recommended this one. Yeah, because you were fine. It got pretty tedious towards the end, to be honest. <laughs> uh, how did you find it? I was kind of dreading going into it because I. I find the woo-woo stuff kind of hard to read. It just gets so tedious. It's but extremely tedious. this, of the, all the woo-woo we've read, this is the best written by a long shot and the yeah, most yeah. Oh, coherent. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, I'm not saying that it is totally coherent, but <laughs> within the, the, the context of woo-woo, what do you call it, fiction or non-fiction? Well, he would not call it. He would not call it fiction. It's fairly (laughs) coherent. I'm pretty sure he said at the beginning of the book, like he was going to submit something like this as a dissertation. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, I was about to say. I don't think Prometheus Rising started as a PhD dissertation called (laughs) "The Evolution of Neurosociological Circuits: A Contribution to the Sociobiology of Consciousness" for. Paidia, Paidia. I'm not. I don't know how to pronounce it. Some defunct fucking hippie. Which was some alternative university in California that full of uh, went went under because it was like it it was. It It attracted this sort of like Prometheus Rising. So yeah, (laughs) but he he rewrote it when um, Paidia or Paidia or whatever the fuck it's called went under. Padaya. Rewrote it in a more commercially friendly form. Got rid of all the footnotes. He said he footnoted every second sentence. I doubt it. Having read it, I don't know what he'd be referencing. Like <laughs> <laughs> what he would be footnoting it for. <laughs> um, yeah, and the the result is the 1983 opus Prometheus Rising. <laughs> was it 93? Which, I thought it was 97 or was it 93? A- 83. Oh, 83. Right. 1983. Where did I get it? 97 from? I don't know. 83. Yeah, right. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I just assumed it was written in the 60s, but it wasn't. It's um, <laughs> 20 years late to the party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did I come about this book? Why did I... Why did I, why did I punish us? Why did you book? recommend it? <laughs> uh, I don't... Oh, damn. How did I come about this book? Oh, you know what? It might have been with McKenna. Um, he might have made reference. So uh, when I when we're reading through the books, oftentimes if uh, if they reference somebody else, I'll make note of that mm. reference because then it's you know more fodder for the show. So like this book was great because it was full of heaps of references like into all sorts of wacky shit. <laughs> <laughs> like some really like he's referencing actual like science <laughs> physicists and stuff and then he just like reference like he loves alistair crowley which we have to read <laughs> yeah i think i'm afraid we're probably gonna have to read alistair crowley afraid aren't you excited to read alistair crowley That's something i've studiously avoided my entire life <laughs> yeah so um i think perhaps Ter- he uh uh robert anton wilson's name perhaps came up uh in parallel to Mm-hmm. Um, reading uh, <laughs> Food of the Gods <laughs> and it went, it went yeah, on the yeah. They seem like fellow travellers and well, evidently they are. I did no research because I'm I'm really thorough like that when it comes to podcasting <laughs> but I, 
I sensed that the two might have known each other, might have even been friends. They were, at the very least, they were professional associates. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if they were friends, but yeah, they, knew, they definitely knew each other. Um, yeah, pretty cool. Actually, the video is really funny. They were talking to this guy who's called, uh, he, he was a fiction, he was an amateur fiction writer who was explaining, uh, was it? super realism or something like this it's like making things so real that you like in the way that you write that you like hyper focus on otherwise mundane things and then try to make it like um almost like surreal but without and then oh and also like mixing in science fiction stuff and mckenna was like basically orgasming with this guy in this conversation <laughs> he's like yes but in a way life is art and this is such a strange adventure we're all on <laughs> it's like oh this guy God. just can't stop <laughs> he just can't stop he's just can't he's been himself. pursuing the cannabis lifestyle too assiduously and he's burned <laughs> he, his fucking brain they flesh. pass him this joint before they go into they were about to give a speech they go to give a speech or something at this at this uh at this astronomy um at this observatorium and <laughs> They pass McKenna in speech and he just, uh, a blunt, and he just smashes it like. You know, like when you hand somebody a joint, and you know as soon as they get the joint, you're just like, yeah, you smoke weed all the time, mate. Mm. <laughs> you give, give Richie a joint. He's just like, he knows how to smoke a joint. So basically, with this book, Robert Anton Wilson was providing a framework to justify his intense optimism. His <laughs> profound, <laughs> profound optimism for the future. And he, he was making prophecies about the future. Yeah. He does, he does this by adapting Timothy Leary's Eight Circuit Consciousness Model. Mm. Timothy Leary, a trusted yeah, source marrying... in neurophysiology, <laughs> <laughs> neuropsychology. <laughs> yeah. Taking, taking that and then applying it to an evolutionary framework and saying, oh, we're evolving our consciousnesses at an exponential, exponentially increasing rate. Therefore, <laughs> in a few decades, we're all going to be living on Mars, living forever, have our own personal spaceships. We'll have drugs that will allow us to enter any state of mind at mm. will. We'll be able to see in our own DNA the direction which evolution will take and like we we can get to my problems with that <laughs> when when we reach whichever just imagine the the spot the star child in 2001 a space odyssey that is yeah he's basically he's come up with a framework to explain why that's going to happen <laughs> by sort of 2030 yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to all of humanity oh, way not then yeah, he, he was, was saying, saying like in two thousand in two thousand and five we'll be able to stop aging and things like that. Yeah, but he he said he gave a he gave a specific he said twenty twenty eight we would be an interplanetary species with millions of people living off Earth. Wow, we're really we're really really we're really far one. behind. Really far. Don't behind. even have Come six on. years left. Come on, Elon, <laughs> chop chop. <laughs> so he starts all this off by giving. By giving us this idea of the thinker and the prover, he says 
the human mind can be, it behaves as if it were divided into two parts or a useful way of regarding the mind is to consider it as divided into two parts, the thinker and the prover. Basically, the thinker can imagine anything or basically anything, but, but it doesn't. Like say, none of us have an infinite variety of thoughts. It's quite limited. That's because the thinker basically quite early on in life will just fixate on a few things and decide, okay, this is how the world works. Yeah. So the thinker thinks stuff. Then you've got the prover. The prover just looks at what the thinker thinks and then supplies evidence for it. So he says, if the thinker thinks that the sun moves around the earth, the prover will obligingly organize all perceptions to fit that thought. If the thinker changes its mind and decides the earth moves around the sun, the prover will reorganize the evidence. So that's not, I don't think that's a, a, a totally unfair way of viewing the world. Yeah, although he basically just described his entire book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the criticism. So he, he's basically describing confirmation bias here, which, yeah, it exists. Yeah. So I am more inclined to believe things that already fit with my established worldview because it's just much more comfortable cognitively. Yeah, but Yes, thing. exactly. Yeah. You then go on to say, well, that's basically what you've just done for the past it, 300 pages. In fact, there's this genre of book and I will basically <laughs> lump him with McKenna, which is they have their beliefs about the future and or their political beliefs, and then they go out and they find all the craziest, weirdest evidence they can, and they smash it all together and weave it into a narrative that confirms their beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> and this is essentially what McKenna... It, in that sense, it's very similar to Food, Food of the Gods in the kind of approach to how I'm going to uh, win over my audience, which is just to confound them with so many loosely coupled <laughs> associations. That, that really sounds like the booming tertiary educational industry of spending the past few decades fruitlessly pounding the corpse of Marxism, hoping that it's going to wake up eventually and work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, and he didn't, as far as I'm aware... He didn't actually have a like a social sciences degree. Hey, what what was his education? Imagine the sort of power he would have had if he actually had a BA. Um, <laughs> he does. Uh, he does actually mention science. Um, so, just he, so people he know, he quite liked science because he said that he, while he science, while an individual scientist is is just as as liable to to confirm their own biases in looking for evidence as any other human being. The scientific method's quite good because through so many different experiments performed by so many different people with so many different points of view, at least ideally, you're eventually going to asymptotically approach the truth. So apparently he says he studied so electrical engineering oh yeah. and mathematics, electrical engineering really? and mathematics. And then he also studied, went on to study English education. Uh, but he didn't finish that degree. So actually, he, his background was a STEM background. Right. Because he says of science, science achieves or approximates objectivity not because the individual scientist is immune from the psychological laws that govern the rest of us, but because the scientific method, a group creation, eventually overrides individual prejudices in the long run. And that's something that I I'd, I'd just agree with. I don't think that's... 
Yeah. That's unfair. I think he does, he underestimates the ability of an individual or at least some individuals to change their mind yeah. in the face of evidence. I think those people are definitely the minority, but they certainly exist. Yeah, but and also the whole, there's... I, I agree with that sentiment. Also, like, the at least one person, usually it's a small, uh, like, it's a, a group of people who are in communication with one another, but even if you said it's just one person who changes the paradigm, like Einstein, at least the progenitor of the paradigm shift had to have thought differently. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even right, make that's, sense. That's because the thinker already thought those thoughts and the prover oh, sought course. to prove them. Yes, of course. What am I, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> but no, we, we're starting out fairly strongly in that... No, I didn't want to go in criticising him too hard. <laughs> like, he hasn't said, he hasn't to be said nice. anything that, that's too, too strange. Yeah, I, there's confirmation bias. But he does... Saying, we Sorry, no, we have biases and we often fall prey to them and that's all right but this book has a bunch of uh exercises at the end of each chapter and i think the basic point of these exercises is to kind of shake people out of their kind of uh mm. ingrained ways of thinking and their assumptions so he kind of has like do this weird discordant thing like if you're a christian pretend to be an atheist or if you're an atheist pretend to be a christian or if you're a marxist pretend to be a capitalist or whatever and like look at these things from all these different points of view and what he's trying to do is like you know capture the biggest net of audience possible and give them uh active exercises to try and sort of yeah. shake up their worldview which i thought was an interesting way of writing a book some of them are okay so yeah as you were saying some of them will be okay try to think about the world from a perspective of someone you don't agree with some of them are like go get really really stoned and watch a movie and then some <laughs> which of them, is great some of them will be things like i'll just i don't know go to a sufi retreat for the weekend so some of these some of these i did do i tried thinking about did you go to a sufi things. retreat jack <laughs> i live in czech republic i don't know where so the yes find a sufi retreat here. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm um, having an, again, an intercultural yeah, I, 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 experience right now, shitting myself in fucking Bali. Try, try not to die from dehydration. <laughs> he's also got this. He's got this bit about um, how the the brain is hardware and your thoughts yeah. are software. So for me, I didn't find this part particularly interesting and he spends a very long time trying to explain to you the distinction between hardware and software i think part of this is just that he wrote this in the 80s and we live in a world where at least in the wealthy world computers are ubiquitous no see that's where software terence mckenna and and is ubiquitous so mob, we just this part isn't that interesting they were way ahead of their time with this one like you yeah. see earlier clips of terence mckenna talking about the internet and his his like he saw how bigger deal it was and i, and I think like if given yeah. that uh so from Anton a historic Wilson perspective was, this is interesting that he did pick then. it yeah i mean it would have been so early in 83 to call to make a call on the web being a big deal like that's actually yeah. pretty like that was pretty insightful of him uh yeah so he does have this this cool idea of how software of say the software and the brain exists and He's at pains to point out he's not saying that the brain is literally like a processing unit and we're running programs on it and things like that. He says that 
outside of us is reality that you as a human being need some sort of model to pass. He says, all experience is a muddle until we make a model to explain it. The model can clarify the muddles, but the model is never the muddle. The map is not the territory. The menu does not taste like the meal. So he says this, and I don't, I don't disagree with that. But then he talks about software in this really interesting way, how software can be really anywhere. It doesn't just have to be within the human brain. He says, the software in my brain also exists outside my brain in forms as, say, a book I read 20 years ago, which was an English translation of various signals transmitted by Plato 2,400 years ago. I thought that was pretty cool. That was... um, Yeah, that was was interesting. Yeah. So he starts off this book actually... Well, I would say like I started it really not wanting to read it. And by the time I was at this part, which is in chapter two or something, I was feeling actually a lot more optimistic. So, yeah, I I was set your your expectations low enough. (laughs) (laughs) I was disagreeing with him here, but I also thought just because uh, he was writing in the 80s and cybernetics as a field was started in the 20s. And um, cy- cyberpunk was a very early. Was very. Was Philip K. Dick publishing in the eighties? Um, so like this was early days. He was. I think. Mm. I I tried to be generous in reading his stuff to think like, oh well, he's working on understandings of like computation and physics from yeah forty years ago, um, and he did his. Like, like he went to university in the 50s. So like this book was probably really, he was probably like using really groundbreaking ways of thinking about things at the time. Yeah, I give him credit for that. It just, it kind of jumps the shark pretty quick after chapter two. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. He, um... Like he's kind of being sensible and then he just, yeah. it. he just goes nuts then it, well the thing is as soon as he gets into the eight circuit model of consciousness it just it goes into full la la land um <laughs> but before before we get to that he's got this thing about programs in the brain the four the four types of basic programs in the brain that that are, are important to understand before we can understand the eight-circuit model of consciousness. So he says that programs get into the brain as electrochemical bonds in discrete quantum stages. I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, so he because just, of his background he's... in electrical engineering, I assume he had some idea about what he was talking about. The problem is I'm, nah, I'm inherently I... sceptical whenever a purveyor of woo-woo starts talking about quantum. quantum field theory because oftentimes they'll do things like Ilona Selka does and use it to say, oh, well, I can move between dimensions. Yeah, which is basically... So just in my by opinion, any sort of wackiness. And in my opinion... I'm not was... someone who understands modern physics really at all. Yeah. But I have such a profound scepticism that I, I will mostly just dismiss any woo-woo purveyor as soon as they start talking about quantum <laughs> stuff. I think that was pretty reasonable. So, in my opinion, what he was doing was he was... What's, is there a word for it where you sort of uh, soften... It, he's, uh, he's just putting in little bits of it 
at the beginning of the woo-woo, the quantum stuff. So he, mm. he's like drip feeding it a little bit, fertilizing the ground. Yeah. So that it's later like boiling on, boiling a frog slowly because he didn't have to say quantum discrete steps. <laughs> he could have just said discrete steps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he got it in there and in a very, in a very strange way by having it in there and you just been like, okay, fine, whatever discrete steps later on. It just builds and builds and builds on this <laughs> until, he's, <laughs> until all of a sudden he's talking about the circuit eight. So, um, yeah, are you are you still in chapter three? Bit. Sorry, or are you in sorry chapter? Yeah, three? Are you yeah. The... And the the first the first of these yes. types of the, these oh, the four, four types of programs, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. genetic imperatives. Yeah, yeah, and he says you can consider these to be instinct. They're totally hardwired programs. They're non-negotiable aspects of our individuality. These are the sorts of things that... They're those ways of approaching situations that, as you get older, just remain the same. These sort of things that you can't escape. They're just you. Yeah. They're the programs that are kind of keeping you alive at an animal level. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) While you're trying to do abstract algebra (laughs) or, or, you know... uh, day trade crypto you've also got to you know keep your heart pumping (laughs) and have sex and eat some food (laughs) Mm -hmm. then the next one the next one are called they these are imprints he says these are more or less hardwired programs which means i'm assuming they're not hardwired because it seems so my interpretation correct me if you think i'm wrong is that they're kind of uh, there's a window of plasticity and then based on yeah. environmental um, interactions, uh, imprinting, uh, mm-hmm. through the imprinting phase, they become solidified and they yeah. they lose their plasticity in a way they almost become like, uh, you, you know, like when you chuck some clay in a kiln. <laughs> I was yeah. like, after, after, after you've put it in the kiln, it's now... Uh, concretized that's that's what's happened after imprint yeah and it can be it has an element of randomness because whatever happens to be occurring at the time of this plasticity influences these imprints so an example is so when you hit puberty and you get interested in sex he talks about why so many people have particular fetishes that whatever happens to be around that arouses you in this period of plasticity just becomes your thing the thing that gets you going what were you around during your <laughs> period of sex- <laughs> psych- socio-sexual plasticity? I was around a bunch of other boys. <laughs> I was in a all, all boys boarding school. <laughs> I was around uh, beige brick walls and smelly teenage boys. <laughs> what have we got next? Uh, conditioning. <laughs> So these are programs built onto imprints. So I guess these these sound like things that somewhat modify imprints and they can be deconditioned. You can actually work on these to change them. Whereas with with genetic imperatives and imprints, the first two of these types of programs, you can't really change them. Like you're born with the genetic imperatives, with with the imprints. Once, Once they've been imprinted and they've set, that's kind of it. Yeah, although I think he said that with a, uh, 
he did sort of make a caveat that with therapy or whatever, you can sort of like, and if you do, especially the higher yogas and stuff, you can turn off or regulate the lower, the lower circuits. But yeah. Yeah. Essentially he, he makes a lot of claims that like, you know, 90% of humanity or something is running on like these lower circuits. And that's, you know, half the reason why the world's fucked up. Basically. Yeah. He's basically calling everybody else that who, who isn't him and who doesn't agree with him an idiot. <laughs> and then you finally got you've got learning which which can happen at any point in your life and is very very easily overridden by further learning yep so from this he establishes this this model of how how the the self works and how consciousness works and this is based on timothy leary's eight circuit model of consciousness which up front, this model, I guess it's somewhat internally consistent, but it's the same problem we had with Evola, where Evola is more internally consistent than this is, but it has a degree <laughs> of internal coherence. But the problem is, as soon as you ask why this is the case, that can't be answered. It's like, yeah. okay, why is our consciousness divided into eight circuits? Well, it just is. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Why not three? Why not nine? Why not two thousand? I don't know. It just is. I told you in a book. Yeah, and even even here, so he he compares these levels or these circuits to other frameworks such as uh, Freud's division of like developmental stages, um, Jung's division of the psychology, even Carl Sagan's like often used analogy of like reptile brain. Um, mm that sort of stuff and tarot cards and they sort of, and he's like oh yeah this circuit maps to this part of jung or this part of freud but then he'll be like yeah. oh yeah but freud was missing this part for whatever reason or jung was missing this part or carl sagan was missing this part it's like but doesn't that mean they just disagree with you <laughs> like you can't you can't yeah, and use the- them as evidence to support your point where they're just not agreeing with you <laughs> i think uh- a deeper issue is just how easily varied his model of consciousness is. Because when he's talking about how with Jung, he's like, oh, well, in Jung, Jung's missing out this stage, but he has these other stages. And you think, well, okay, why can't I just take a Jungian perspective and say, oh, well, this guy called Robert Anton Wilson has these stages, but he's added in another one for some reason. You don't need it. Yeah, in fact, in fact, Robert Anton Wilson uses his eight-circuit model to explain Jung's psychology, the fact that he wasn't comfortable with his sexuality or something, to explain why mm. Jung left out the psychosexual part from his analysis. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> mate, that's, that's a completely incoherent thing to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as Jack, as Jack said, he, you're a good Deutschian there. If anybody has heard me rant about the beginning of Infinity, like my girlfriend has, or Jack has, or... Any one of my friends has heard me rant about how good the beginning of Infinity is. It's a dead giveaway if, if there's a bad explanation is how easily varied it is. Um, this is incredibly easily varied. In fact, he varies it right in front of your face <laughs> as he's as writing the book. He's, he's got graphs of him just varying. And he's like, yeah, all these people disagree, but they all agree with me. <laughs> this book, the the meat of the book is him just going through each of these eight circuits sequentially and acting as if they 
Like they're an established fact and he just needs to explain what they do. And then at the end of the book, he'll, he ties it together and says, this is why by 2005 or something, we're going to halt aging and shortly after we'll be able to yeah, live forever. And, and he actually, Mars. apparently he made a claim that mm. I was reading somewhere under Wikipedia or something. Um, that he actually thought he was going to... I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> such, such a dark thing to laugh at. <laughs> but he, he was confident that he was going to be one of the first people to like be the longevity generation, that he would live to 300 or whatever. <laughs> and he, I don't know. He's, he's dead. So he died in 2007 yeah, he keeps, or something. He keeps taking pot shots at people, saying that, oh, they live on lower circuits, on the antique circuits, which... So basically, there there are eight circuits. The first four of these circuits are the ones that all all humans have, and they're not very good. And the the really good stuff happens between circuit five and circuit eight. But he he dismisses people who think that we're not going to live forever as these primitives trapped on the first four circuits, and then he died, and then he died, <laughs> and then and- he died. He didn't get to see anything. So can I just uh, give a basic projection of what, <clears throat> where this goes? So listen to this. You can, you can stop listening after this because we're just going to explain in detail. But roughly speaking, he says one, two, three, and four is the, is the past. Those are the circuits that got us here. But five, six, seven, eight are like the, uh, the galaxy brain circuits. And if we can yeah. pump those up using psychedelics and, and yoga and, and ash <laughs> <laughs> and pranayama breathing, then we can blast off into space <laughs> and become become the the star child from two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. And that and his exactly. his whole philosophy is essentially him trying to build this this uh, this structure to justify his prediction about oh yes we're going to become the star, the star species. And look, I'm on board with becoming the star species. I love the, uh, all the, the space exploration stuff and the longevity research and, and all this sort of stuff. But um, we're not going to get it done with people who think like Robert Anton Wilson. <laughs> We've got really serious scientists doing it, not um, Discordian high priests. <laughs> At least. So what normally happens when people... Well, I guess this is the... The thinker thinks and the prover proves. Back to chapter uh, one. I am being a fucking yeah confirmation. No, bias so he shit. he obviously his thinker thought, okay, well, I am gonna live forever. So <laughs> how do, the prover went, all right, great. So let's look for evidence why Robert Anton Wilson is gonna live forever, <laughs> and probably do so in space. Probably in space. Probably with some so, acid. But. But what normally happens is some someone will have a really pessimistic worldview. There'll be a real doomer. And they will look for reasons why they're blackpilled or they'll try really, really hard to find evidence for their blackpill. Whereas this guy was really optimistic. So that was nice. That's that was nice. That's something yeah. you find less often. Someone who is unapologetically optimistic yeah, really optimistic. And, you know, from from the point of view of like, yes, we have continued making a lot of progress with regards to a lot of knowledge creation. Yeah. Like, yeah, the world is an amazing place and I'd say it's probably get generally getting better um, year on year. But 
uh, well, I mean, he claims to he referenced Karl Popper's Open Society. I don't think he actually read the book because if he had, he would realize that his book was a bunch of shit, and Karl Popper wouldn't agree with him at all. But he's making a prophecy, and he's pretending it's a prediction. Mm-hmm. And if he had actually read the Open Society, he would realize that the entire basis of his book about making prediction about a system that's affected by the growth of knowledge is um, a dead end. Can't do it. It's a bit unpredictable. Yeah. One would say it might even be inherently unpredictable. (laughs) (laughs) He referenced the Open Society. I would have thought that he would have factored that into his analysis. But I don't think he actually read. I think he read read the blurb of Open Society and then he referenced it. And then it, it like, oh, yeah, I can use that idea in my book. But if he had actually read The Open Society, he'd realize that his entire philosophy yeah. is bunk. <laughs> I guess the fundamental problem with that is that if you know what you are going to know, then you already know it. And in which case it becomes, behave, retro, it becomes retro addiction. Yeah. Yeah. No. Anyway, it's, uh, anyway. It's silly. We're not here to talk about the, Karl Popper or David Deutsch, Levi. Should we're here to up? talk about the oral biosurvival circuit. <laughs> <laughs> circuit one circuit one of consciousness so this is this is the this is a hard wide survival circuit i like one this that one freud in his infinite wisdom also acknowledged <laughs> the also great acknowledged the great psychoanalytic uh minds the founders of, of psychoanalysis yeah it's so interesting wait was was were people like ripping into psychoanalysis in the 80s by that point i don't know the drill i feel like people these days just know that freud is generally not a not a thing oh no it's making it it always well when i say it's making a comeback (laughs) these sort of ideas always float around normally with people who have too high a disposable income and can afford to waste money on (laughs) lying on a leather couch spilling out their soul to an analyst who won't reply to any of their questions. <laughs> but we'll give them a prescription for Xanax. <laughs> well, but a psychoanalyst isn't going to do that. Yeah, true. No, you think a Freudian is allowed to prescribe this <laughs> Prescribe cocaine <laughs> to himself. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Prescribe uh, diagnosing every woman with penis. Can you actually you know? be a, a clinical psychoanalyst? Isn't it? It's only psychology you, and uh, psychiatry, right? Is psychoanalysis even a field, professional field? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm sure they have their own governing body or probably a panoply of governing bodies that <laughs> disagree with each other, but I, I don't know. I, I've, I've never trained in psychoanalysis. I find it strange I've that there's like Freud. Jungian psychoanalysis and there's Freudian psychoanalysis and then there's like, there's some other psychoanalytic schools that are like people who disagreed with Freud, but who were descendants from Freud or whatever. And it's like, shouldn't there just be one psychoanalysis? <laughs> there should just be one psychoanalysis. There shouldn't be schools. It's not like a religion. Or at least that's what one would think if it I think science. you just stumbled upon the problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so anyway. He, he, he's saying you like to suck on your mother's bosom when you're... A vulnerable infinite, <laughs> oral, oral bio-survival circuit, mm-hmm. very primordial. And he makes the recapitulation argument. 
uh, which is basically roughly like our embryological development uh, recapitulates or uh, is like replaying our evolutionary history. And so he's saying like early infancy maps to early human evolutionary development and maps to oral biosurvival. Yeah, because this what this circuit basically does is it goes forward towards things that are nourishing and retreats from things that are threatening. And the first thing it imprints on is your mother's breast. Because that's what first gives some, you nourishing. Some big old titties, hey, Jack? Some big old titties. So, and he says that that's why orality and biosurvival are so deeply blended in all mammals because mm. the first object of biosurvival mm. you interact with orally. <laughs> and this is why, say, You've got to be despite, really... despite the cancer risk, the, the, the highly addictive nicotine has nothing to do with it. Why we chew gum, eat too much, bite our fingernails. All of this can be described or explained using this first circuit. It's, it's not like it, you model. need to... It's not like you have a specialised orifice that you use to breathe and ingest uh, nutrients with. It's because mm. you're recapitulating the imprinting from when you were an infant. <laughs> and I've got two quotes. I've got two quotes here, which are, they're just, they're just peak woo-woo. So one of them says, so we, basically we're obsessed with breasts because of this. He says, even in non-human scenes, curves are introduced wherever possible. Architects break the Euclidean straight line to introduce curves at the slightest pretext, arches, Moorish domes, etc. So you hear that the only reason why people use anything other than straight lines is because they're trying to recapitulate the shape of a, a human a breast. A human breast, which is, it's like, I don't know how to explain this, except, oh yeah, okay, so this is how I thought about, was thinking about it earlier today, is that, um... Uh, it's like associational thinking. Uh, I don't know if that's the correct term for it, but there's this idea that if you take a person and then get them, say, you, you do tests such as uh, think of um, as many uses for a brick as you can in a minute. Mm. And the more uses a person can come up with is one thing, but then also like the re the, the sort of how common those uses are the inverse of how common they are is like how novel they are um mm. so if somebody can come up with a lot of uses and they're very novel uses or very uncommon uses then you might think that, that person has like a, a broader like more creative mind and also if you do things like word association like how novel are the words the person can come up with like there's associational thinking novel thinking which is important and powerful and then there's some people who just take that way too far <laughs> and they don't realize that whilst it can be really interesting to have very broad associational thinking it's not entirely useful if you just let it just associate anything to anything <laughs> in response i would like to quote robert anton wilson mountain climbers are reduced like mallory to saying because it's there when trying to explain their compulsion to ascend those conic peaks 
Yeah, so this it was in this chapter that he started to lose me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was actually explaining this to, to my girlfriend early today, and I gave a broad outline of the book as like, oh yeah, there's like imprinting and this maps to like parts of our brain based on our evolutionary history and stuff. And she, she's like, oh yeah, that does actually sound that unreasonable. Like, what's wrong with that? And I said, oh no, I haven't explained any of the woo-woo parts to you. Like, every <laughs> single one of these, these are just hooks to just hang anything he wants off it. <laughs> like, yeah, yes, yeah. the reason why in Gothic cathedrals we have domes is because the people who made the cathedrals had bad imprinting to their mother's breasts. <laughs> and... Yeah, and he so what this what this circuit does is if you if you stress someone or it it is what is stressed in someone's personality. If something threatening is presented to a person, they will retreat to the first circuit mm. and and demonstrate signs of anxiety. Interestingly too, and he this is important for his view of our current society is this circuit is programmed to seek out some sort of mothering figure. But if there isn't a mother, it will just imprint on whatever else is there. And he says that <laughs> we imprint any, upon anything. money. Yeah. We imprint upon, we imprint upon money, money as, as our source of biosecurity. Erroneously in our society, these biosecurity tickets, dollars, know, or, or whichever denomination you, dear listener, connection. use in your country. Whatever piece of fiat cuck money you use in your country. <laughs> 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 You're not trading bars of gold bullion. <laughs> or, or, or blown glass beads. <laughs> but shout out to any of our uh, listeners in Central Africa. Ancient, ancient monetary meeting. <laughs> so, um, so uh, the other interesting thing that he talks about is that, especially these lower circuits. Does he talk about? Does he apply this to circuit four? I think he only applies this to circuit one, two, and three. But he says that the imprinting of these circuits affects your nervous system, and not just your central mm. nervous system, but your your uh, peripheral nervous system as well, such that your physiognomy, like the way that your yeah. body develops into adulthood, reflects the imprinting. So he uses, and he says it's in, in extreme, so he gives extreme case, and this is what we mean by easily buried. <laughs> you can always just say, well, these yeah. examples are just the extremes. Um, but like if you were poorly imprinted in your um, oral survival or bio survival stage uh though the physiognomy associated with that like pudgy fat people uh what do you call them viscerotonic viscerotonic yeah people. viscerotonic and so the illustration that he gives is like kind of short pudgy person um who likes to eat too much because they want to put stuff in their mouth so they probably smoke a lot probably drink a lot and probably suck a lot of dick mm -hmm. and put a lot of food in their mouth so, <laughs> because they imprinted poorly when they were a child. <laughs> it's just like, okay, cool. Well, it's not and even then... a poor imprint. It's just, it's just those, in that particular person, the first circuit dominates. Right. Okay. Yeah, other that's, ones. That, that's a, that's and a, so they, they become, correct. yeah, they're baby faced, pudgy, round, gentle, 
they're easily hurt. Oh, so it's, it's like by, it's like an over by any sort of expression of disapproval, an overexpression of that circuit. Or yeah, dump. right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just BT Dub, uh, if you do get the book, you don't have to actually get the book. You can just look them up online. But he's got some really funny il- illustrations in the book that are re- they're really great. Um, yeah. Uh, for those viewing online, our backgrounds on on um like behind each of us is uh an illustration from the book i really liked his illustrations i thought they were funny and interesting they were yeah (laughs) they they are pretty good he talks about how you should exercise these circuits daily to remain healthy because these circuits are necessary his problem is only when they're overactive say in the case of he calls them injustice collectors say if the first circuit is overactive the 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 prover will collect evidence to show that other people are really really dangerous and he says that if you're a woman you become a radical feminist and if you're a man in with an overactive first circuit you go to either the extreme left or the extreme right yeah <laughs> that's, that's the reason he picked yep. it political polarization in 1983, Robert Anton Wilson already worked out why it happens. So he's playing catch up. So 2016 election was just a bunch of overly, oh, just too much circuit one making people too polarized. <laughs> so what's going on? Does does Twitter make circuit one expression? Uh, does it uh, amplify circuit one expression? Is that what's going? Going on in Robert and if he were analyzing Twitter, the current political polarization, he'd be attributing it to Circuit One. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but okay. So how you how you use this circuit in a healthy way? How you exercise it daily? You play with your own body, and with someone else's body, and with the environment. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, and and not doing so because of say the imprinting of the third and fourth circuits can lead to coldness, muscular rigidity, and looking dried up. Uh, and yeah, I guess think of a an old uptight librarian or something like that. Maybe that's that's what happens if you don't exercise your first circuit enough. Now, behind Jack, for people watching, but for people listening. Is a mm. is an illustration of a big, strong, masculine alpha male eating the thigh of a bird, and a little pipsqueak eunuch waiting his turn behind him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> obviously, how do, how does he put it? Like uh, alpha males eat first; the runts of the litter get. Whatever is left over. <laughs> yeah. This is biosurvival circuitry. Well, this is so let's get on to the second circuit, because that's what the picture as of my in my background is of. The second circuit is the anal emotional territorial circuit. So he does the Freudian thing where he associates a father figure with anality. And the second circuit is concerned with with power politics. He says it's situated in the thalamus, linked with vo- the voluntary nervous system and muscles. He also does the thing where he, he localizes in the brain where each of these circuits are, and I just am not convinced that 
it's anatomically correct. (laughs) (laughs) The thalamus exists. Like, territoriality is only in the thalamus. (laughs) No other part of your brain mediates that. Yeah. So, basically, what, what this circuit does is it imprints on the first figure of authority, which is oftentimes the father figure. And it's concerned with with mediating your place in a social hierarchy. And he's got this thing how it first appears when you're a toddler, when you start resisting gravity, when you, you express your dominance over gravity. He says, This circuit appears in each newborn when the DNA master tape sends out RNA messenger molecules to trigger the mutation from neonate to toddler which involves, first of all, standing erect. As an aside, at least from a genetic perspective, standing upright does not entail a mutation. I assume that that's artistic or poetic license that he's taking here. Mm. I'll be generous. He did that a couple of times. He said that, like, some there'll be some stimulus in the environment that'll cause... And one of the cases where that can happen... Yeah, like he could so basically, say, oh, maybe ba- he basically a, a mutation is a change in your DNA. It's some something that in no, I understand that that introduces a change in your I'm DNA trying code. To be, so say radiate ionizing radiation can. I'm trying lead to be to generous, mutation, given that he was writing but in the 80s, standing like, up doesn't. Like maybe like what he, he like if he were writing now, he could attribute some of those things to like oh well we didn't understand epigenetics yet, so maybe. Like it could be like uh, genetic expression has changed, and just was mm. right in the eighties. So maybe I'm being a little bit too generous here, <laughs> and he shouldn't have been saying mutation. It'd be like alter the genetic expression of certain things rather than full on mutation. But if he's saying mutation, then he's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. So imprinting imprinting takes time takes place at the time of standing up. Yeah. yeah. At, during toddlerhood and based on chance events during imprint vulnerability, you're going to you're going to be submissive or dominant. You'll be a, a a chad alpha male or you'll be a beta orbiter forever sending all of your money to an ego online. <laughs> And this circuit manifests as these lifelong muscular reflexes that other people can see and just intuitively know where you sit on the dominance hierarchy by how you move, by some chance event that happened when you were, you were a toddler. He says, status in the pack or tribe is assigned on the basis of pre-verbal signaling system, kinesics, in which these muscle reflexes are crucial. I think there's something to how someone carries themselves physically might tip you off as to whether they are very confident or not. I wouldn't say it's everything. Yeah. He's so he's 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 going out on a limb there. <laughs> <laughs> he's also got this thing so he he says in mammals, particularly primates, because primates mark their territory with their own feces, that's why there's, is, there's such a fundamental connection between anality and dominance hierarchies. 
I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. He, Freud, he says, Freud did a lot of this lot of shit as well, where stuff. he talked about how there's a fundamental link between your anus and the dominant father figure. Again, yeah. I just think he's... He's just making things up here. And uh, <laughs> here, he then... There was an interesting... Uh, does he talk about here? Somewhere else. Um, he, yeah. He talks about... um. Like, how do I explain this? Um, he he's never satisfied to just say that this is about the individual's development, which would be pretty spurious by itself. But he then posits political and uh, sort of collective <laughs> explanations, such as like, well, this is also the reason why we have. Uh, let's see if I can find the quote like borders <laughs> yeah so, uh, so this quote here says if the bio survival circuit is chiefly imprinted by the mother the second emotional territorial circuit is chiefly imprinted by the father the nearest alpha male <clears throat> it has been proposed by sociologist Rat Ray Taylor that society swing back and forth between matrix periods which motherly oral values predominate and patris periods in which fatherly mm -hmm. anal values are in uh, ascendance. And there's a picture of like a border <clears throat> and there's like different piles of shit on both sides. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as, as he, he described with the first circuit, someone in whom that circuit predominance, the viscerotonic person. So he describes someone in whom the second circuit predominates or dominates to an extreme. These people are musculotonic. Alpha they tend to be a medium build, so heavy enough not to get knocked down, but light enough to be agile. They often become bodybuilders or weightlifters. They're they obsessed often do with demonstrating their strength bone and smashing are and often put in the military. And he's got a picture of one that he drew, which is just like this this tall guy with a big square jaw and broad shoulders who's really, really physically imposing. Looks vaxxed. <laughs> yeah. Looks, looks maxed. He's a bone-smashing veteran. <laughs> he's oh. been diligently punching himself in the face for the past few years. Was that a... Yeah. <laughs> uh... Yeah, and then some of the some of the exercises for for Circuit Two were pretty funny. One of them was get stoned and watch animal shows on TV, and then go to work the next day and animal and analyze the primate pack hierarchy taking place within your workplace. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> that was that was <laughs> funny. Go see lions <clears throat> at a zoo until you understand their reality. <laughs> Um, oh, humors. You know, like uh, the like medical humors. Like, oh yeah, you've got these sort of like fluids running around in your body, like hot or cold fluid. I don't actually know anything about humors because it was it was not not a part of my education. <laughs> but at least according to him, there's like a bilious humor, a sanguinary humor, a choleric humor, and a phlegmatic humor, which. <laughs> uh, are like, I don't know, some part of your body, but then they also correspond to some psychological traits. 
so he maps these things from humans, which just so that everybody knows, like that's that's not a part of medical science anymore. That's <laughs> not considered medical science. It's definitely pseudoscience, pre pre medical science. <laughs> and so he maps his model to like bilious humor maps to hostile strength. So like, are you mean and strong? Sanguinary humor maps to friendly strength. Uh, so there's like a four quadrant drawing. Choleric humor maps to hostile weakness, and phlegmatic humor maps to friendly weakness. So there's just an example of him just he just pulled on something completely random which literally any practicing doctor in any developed country will just say that's not that's this is like that's just that's something from like 400 years ago nobody thinks like that <laughs> but he's he's yeah, like he, he thinks that that somehow reinforces the or validates <laughs> what is his framework <laughs> Think, yeah, so basically, if, so people can visualize it a bit better. What he did was he drew up two axes, sort of two-dimensional axes. One axis is the circuit one axis. So are you more inclined to advance or retreat? The other axis is the circuit two axis. Are you more likely to submit or dominate? And then, yeah, he assigns the, the four quadrants around those axes Friendly strength, friendly weakness, hostile strength, hostile weakness. And then, yeah, matches those with different, I don't know, quadripartite distinctions of hu the human experience throughout history. Like he maps them to different animals, to, say, fire, water, earth, and air, to sanguinary, phlegmatic, choleric, and bilious humors, and says, oh, look, it's, it's echoing through history as if that's... I guess he thought it was evidence. It felt somewhat like Evola, who would just like find myth or something like that and say, oh, look, there are all these myths that are sort of similar. So, yeah, he Hyperborea pulls in that fire air stuff as stopped well. existing when Tarot. people miscegenated and the earth tilted on its axis, preventing <laughs> it from being the unmoving center of the world. It, it's that sort of reasoning, which is not very compelling. What are your thoughts on um, humors, Jack? On humours, um, well, they really are foundational to any good medical treatment of a patient. Wasn't that yeah, what he, killed he uh, spent George Washington? They thought his humours were out of balance, so they bloodletted him. <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had like a bad flu or something, and they bloodletted the first president of the US to death. Good on him. Yeah, he, he did a lot of this where he would... He would draw up these charts with different axes being different circuits of human consciousness and then divide people in those ways. I took notes on it, but I don't particularly want to talk about it because without a visual aid, it's sort of hard to follow. And also, they're just, they're just a bit silly. They're just bullshit. They don't. Oh, <clears throat> Here's the basic logic. People, everyone, you, you can, under very very specific circumstances, uh, take one structure and find a correspondence to another structure. And if you think that those two structures actually do have that correspondence, then statements about one structure also correspond. You can like make deductions about the other structure. And mm. in mathematics, that's called a homomorphism. It's very interesting. And there's all sorts of interesting stuff that goes along with that. Or in 
Uh, I'm learning about category theory at the moment and you can do morphisms across different categories in mathematical structures and it's super interesting and I think that's how actually in physics and stuff you can like make mappings between different mathematical models of different systems and like you can convert say like different algebras to like different geometries and stuff um and that's what ties it all together is like things like morphisms and homomorph homomorphisms but that sort of mapping is extremely delicate and extremely difficult and extremely rigorous and uh <laughs> and is like to what he's kind of doing is he's taking like all these different things and then he's creating correspondences between them um but there's no rigor and there's no falsification <laughs> and no. in fact there's the opposite of falsification because what he's doing is he's finding any correspondence and then using that to say oh therefore this must be like some insight into a deeper thing yeah so on top of these two circuits he adds a third one to um either further clarify human experience or just make everything much more confusing depending on how much you subscribe to the eight circuit model of human consciousness this is the time binding semantic circuit and it exists to create what he calls a reality tunnel, which for him is a very important concept. A reality tunnel really is just an explanatory framework within which you can fit experience and make it into some sort of comprehensible whole. Something, something that you can operate within. It's not just this stream of sensory data. And you can, you can pass on these frameworks. He talks about how people like Jesus, Moses, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, and so on, are the creators of probably the most powerful reality tunnels we've come across yet in human history. These reality tunnels that billions of people today, let alone throughout history, have used to pass their experiences and these can also be things like, say, scientific theories, inventions that we can use in the everyday world, like the wheel. Really, something that you can formulate with words or some sort of symbolic system is what the third circuit is responsible for. Mm. I actually think this is an interesting... So, one of, <clears throat> one of the positives about the book, and I think this is, this is one of the positives for me, is that... Although he's pretty, he shoots from the hip. <laughs> he does, he does, he did expose me to a lot of interesting ideas. And so his main inspiration, one of his main inspirations for this was a linguist called Kors, Korzybski. I think I probably botched the name Korzybski, uh, who is this linguist who talks, I think basically talks about how language in the form of artifacts, allows us to time bind. So to be able to give, gives us a sense of time. Um, I thought that was a really interesting idea. And the way that, <laughs> the way that Robert Anton Wilson uses it, it probably like it takes it a bit far, but I still found it a really interesting idea. Yeah, I found, so there are, there are plenty of interesting things to be found, particularly when he's discussing the first four, the so-called antique circuits. 
things get a little bit zanier when you go to circuits five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah, oh. he had some he has some interesting ideas here. Yeah, so he has this one quote which I found really interesting. Again, I don't know if I would agree with him, but it, it's it's a very interesting thought. He says so-called quote unquote future shock um has always been with us since the semantic circuit began functioning somewhere in prehistory in a symbolizing calculating abstracting species all time and uh sorry all times are times of change the process is however accelerating fast as time passes because the symbolizing faculty is inherently self-augmenting so we're self mm -hmm. with like the accruing symbols in our culture as we build up more artifacts and knowledge yeah I thought that was really interesting. Hey, yeah. If you live in a pre, a pre symbolic, uh, so imagine like a sort of uh, homo, early Homo sapien, maybe pre symbolic. So maybe they hadn't even started doing art yet, um, or maybe only just started doing like basic tool making and stuff. What would have their sense of like time been like? Like how many generations did they think they existed for? You know, all these sorts of questions. That would have been a very strange time. So is, is it the fact that we're able to accrue cultural artifacts, painting, language, and so forth, um, part of what gives us a sense of just, like, time itself? Yeah, I thought it was super interesting. So I, like, I actually found this, this chapter actually quite interesting. Yeah. He... <laughs> so he's got these interesting bits. He's then got all sorts of weird shit about how it how it resides in the brain how it manifests itself <laughs> in the body so he says right-handedness or say a a preference for one side of the body over another is a purely human trait which is not true other animals actually do show a, a preference for one side of their body over another and he says that right-handedness is related to us using our left hemisphere of our brain more than our right, and the left brain is linear, analytical, computational, associated with talking and semantics. And because we're, we focus so much on this third circuit, we become right-handed. Uh, yeah, he even goes so far at one point to basically say, well, we don't actually really use the right side of our brain that much. Yeah, <laughs> this, like, this stuff about not, <laughs> we do, we us do. not using parts of our brain and stuff like that is such bullshit. I, Where did I'm that so come from? Who the of, fuck? <laughs> I don't know. I'm so fucking tired of this meme. How, oh, we only use 5% of our brain. If you were to use more, you'd be so much smarter. Like, it's just you think yeah, evolutionarily, <laughs> ev evolution is so parsimonious when it comes to conserving resources. Do you really think... <laughs> And just carrying organ, around is, an extra three which is kilos. As energy hungry as the brain. It uses about 20% of the energy used by your body. <laughs> like if that you would just have bits of it that aren't doing anything is just totally ridiculous. It's just like the visual cortex is enormous. This <laughs> is a huge part of like <laughs> image processing. You're processing the stream of image data coming in. <laughs> it talks about a huge amount of resources. Yeah. But no, you're only oh, using 10% of it. <laughs> Indeed, we use the right hemisphere so little in ordinary life that for a long time it was called the silent hemisphere. And it's just not... It's like... Like you were saying with your right like, visual cortex, it's not like the left side of your vision is just turned off because we don't use that part of your brain. It's, it's, it's on almost all the time. It, it, it is on all the time. 
you don't have to switch bits off. And here's where his thinking is just like muddled. It's just like, yeah, people, like, I'll, I'll grant him, okay, people maybe did think that the right hemisphere was the quote unquote silent hemisphere for a long time. But it's like, yeah, that just means they were wrong for a long time. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. mean that it, it really, like, people could just... This is what I don't get why these people like Terence McKenna and Evola uh, and all these other people who pull in, uh, they say, like, whether it's cross-cultural or, like, uh, um, expanding across large, large periods of time, uh, pulling in all these different resources and then saying that all these people think this one thing, therefore it must be true. It's like, no, or they could just be all... Re- they could all just be wrong. <laughs> you can, maybe the people that you're referencing were just wrong. <laughs> he's then got this bit about how... Do you remember the bit where he's talking about Euclidean space and why this was yeah. the, first, the first kind of space developed by mathematics? Oh, this, pit, this actually so, pissed me off. This actually really pissed this, me off. Like, this this is so fucking stupid. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not being even remotely generous to this, this, this shit. So. Really- he says, really I quote, Euclidean space is projection <laughs> outwards of the way our nervous system stacks information on the biosurvival, emotional, and semantic circuits. So when he says Euclidean space, I'm, I assume he just means three-dimensional space. Uh, no, he, so Euclidean space specifically refers to like when you've got two straight lines and they never converge and they never drift apart. And there's different non-Euclidean spaces where... They either converge or they actually drift apart. Yeah. But the way he talks, that was my understanding of Euclidean space, but the way he describes it is he's got these axes, he's got these axes, as we were talking about before when he was mapping different types of personalities where you've got one, you've got, say, a two-dimensional plane. You've, on one set of axes is yeah. the first circuit, second is the second circuit. On this one, he's got a third axis, which is left-hand and right hand, which represents the third circuit for some reason. That's what he calls Euclidean space, a representation of three-dimensional space. Yeah. And he says that (laughs) the reason that this was discovered first was was because we have these three circuits in our brains and therefore we have a greater affinity for... 3D spaces. It's just wrong. It's just not (laughs) true. So so this what he's done is he's looked at Timothy Leary's eight circuit model and gone, "Oh yeah, okay, that's really good. I'll take the first three circuits of that. Three dimensional space has three dimensions. The first three circuits of the eight dimensional." eight-circuit model of human consciousness. Uh, There are three of those, so I'll put these together. Because there is some sort of loose homology there, they must be fundamentally linked. Like, it's just... it. He's just making shit up and then looking for anything in the environment that has some sort of loose association with it, grabbing the first thing he finds and going, oh, yeah, sick, this means I'm right. It's and so it what, just doesn't make sense. What he does, does make is he builds this weird associational network. No, it's fucking. It's complete bonkers. Because um, it was. It's even no, the thing about Euclidean space. Uh, <laughs> how he says, "Oh, if it's three dimensional, it's Euclidean space." I just, I, I don't think that's what Euclidean space is. Well, yeah, he's just wrong. He he gets a number of 
things wrong about mathematics. And look, yeah, Jack and I are not mathematicians, but like this guy studied electrical engineering. Like he should have been. Yeah, like, what's it? I had to had go and look together. up Euclidean space because I was like, no, nah, I feel like I'm going crazy. I don't think this is what it means. Like uh, you can have Euclidean spaces in any number of dimensions. So yeah, it's not. Yeah, so he was just being silly. And I mean, Euclid was doing stuff in two dimensions. So what the fuck was he talking about? <laughs> He's being silly. So no, he also to, made some to get mistakes. Back... He confused logarithms and exponentials later in the book. When he was yeah, that's about, right. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about the logarithmic growth of knowledge, <laughs> and I think he meant the exponential like, growth. He sh- really should like double check. <laughs> it just stops growing after a while. Yeah, he really should double. Just he should like. Did he not? It like. Math is hard. <laughs> not saying math isn't hard, <laughs> but <laughs> you're making like claims about like mathematical claims. At least get somebody to double check <laughs> to double check your reasoning. <laughs> get someone to proofread. He, he it. obviously handed this to like the people that he handed this to to pr- to proofread it. Obviously, it knew less about mathematics than he did, <laughs> and just took his word for it. He's then got the bit about um. About how you look if you're third circuit dominant. So we had viscerotonic, musculotonic. Now we've got cerebrotonic. <laughs> and these people are very tall and skinny because energy in them is always drawn upwards from the body to the head. And they ignore or are hostile to the <laughs> yeah, first. That was so service. good. <laughs> They're really scared of or dismissive of playfulness and emotions. And he calls these people rationalists. Um, I, so he got a few things somewhat right, or I would say along some axes, I'm directionally sympathetic with where he's going when he makes fun of rationalist types. Because when I hear, (laughs) when he talks about rationalist types, he seems to think of, he seems to be describing people who... I don't, just like those I trust the science types or I love science. People who are not scientifically trained don't know anything about science but consider science the to just science. be this established the corpus science. of knowledge that is static. And if you just believe the science, that is something that is unimpeachably true. Science is not a method for they don't generating believe in science. and invalidating yeah. hypotheses. It's... It's this edifice that if you're a right-thinking person, you agree yeah, with yeah. and you just right reflexively thought. agree with. And he seemed to be making fun of these sorts of people. Which is fine. And I'm definitely open to that. The way that the problem I think is, about it... Oh, he'll say that and then say a bunch of other wrong stuff. So <laughs> the, 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 way that, the way that I think about it is that you can't believe in science because science is about falsification. But you can, <laughs> yes. you can, you can believe in, in scientism. <laughs> yes. And scientism is very fashionable at the moment. Um Yeah. And yeah, so he's making fun of people who are into scientism and that that's yes. fine. That I think it's good to make fun of them like Fauci. <laughs> Bloody Fauci. <laughs> I don't have any strong opinions about an American public health official. That's <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> it doesn't impact me. Don't live there. And uh, and uh, that's fine, but his explanation of why they're tall and gangly, and <laughs> <laughs> that was the best bit about this chapter, because <laughs> energy is drawn upwards. 
<laughs> into into their heads. <laughs> and then the 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 exercises for this chapter were like, okay, subscribe to a publication espousing a worldview that you don't agree with. Fine. Take lots of caffeine because stimula- stimulants overstimulate the third circuit. So if if you drink tons of coffee or rail a huge line of speed, that's what it's like to be to be cerebrotonic, to be third circuit dominant. Which actually, if you could be in that headspace all the time, doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> if it's like just being on speed all the time, then I I could do it with a lot more third circuit in my life. With with without without the crash, right? <laughs> without the calm down. Without the crash, yeah. Well, you just got you just can't go off to. Uh, is there a, are there uh, retreats for people coming off the third circuit? <laughs> You got to go and book in for a couple of weeks to <laughs> get off circuit three. Been on a circuit three bender. <laughs> Went out to a bunch of strip clubs. He talks about the interplay between these three circuits, which, in some in some instances, was actually pretty interesting, and in some instances was was really dumb. He made some points about how. Wealth is generated by information and not just land, labour and capital, which sounded pretty good. He was discussing this in the context of, say, the first and second circuits are homeostatic based on negative feedback. And if, if you don't do anything to disturb the first and second circuits functioning, you just get cyclical history because people don't learn anything and just keep making the same mistakes. Mm. When you introduce the third circuit... People learn from their mistakes, stop living cyclically, and this, this begins progress and generates information. And he says that information generates wealth more effectively than the first two circuits dominating. He was kind of, he had some good points here that I agreed with him in principle about a few things but I didn't like agreeing with him because it's Robert Anton Wilson. I thought most of it was Yeah, he's got, he had this but, quote that I wrote down. Yeah, go on. I quite liked, but again, I'm sort of, I'm sort of suspicious of it because, as, as you said, it's Robert Anton Wilson and he just says so much bullshit that when I do mostly agree with something that he said, I start getting nervous. So he said, if you are not alone in the wilderness... Lift your eyes from the page and look about. All that you see, whoever theoretically owns it, is the time-binding product of the materialised or manifested ideas of creative men and women. It is all negative entropy, coherent order. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And then he, relatedly to the, he said, uh, the real source of wealth is correct ideas, workable ideas. That is negative Mm -hmm. entropy information. So, like, it's very interesting, you know, the idea that like there can be inert material and it's useless and then all of a sudden mm. it go, becomes a resource that has a use and is valuable and the only thing that changed was humans knowledge of how to utilize that material so it was an idea in people's yeah. head the, there's no property of the material itself changed like you know like oil or whatever um so He's he's right about that, but I really don't want to give him the point. 
Really? I think we're going to have to. So he's, he's basically saying, so when you look at a car, that's an externalised I'm idea. so reticent to give him that. And that's, I, I agree with that. I like that. And I thought the start of this chapter, chapter seven, the time-binding dialectic, acceleration and deceleration. I thought the start of this chapter was quite good. But, but he yes. confirmed all of my biases later in the chapter by going back into cuckoo land. So, with the illest thing, stuff. actually. So, he talks about John Ruskin distinguishing, distinguishing between wealth, and which health. is concretized ideas which enhance life, and ilf, which uh, concretized ideas which destroy, demean, or degrade life. So, he makes yeah. that distinction. This is interesting. I'd never heard this before. Mm. I went and looked it up. I quite like that distinction. That's yeah. an interesting one. At least yeah, maybe, maybe there, is, there is more to it that I'm not aware of that is also bonkers, but at least the way that it's represented in Prometheus Rising seems quite good. Yeah, although he the distinction then... between nuclear... Like, nuclear is n- nuclear energy, but you put in a bomb destroys the city you put in a nuclear reactor energizes the city at least when it came to nuclear energy i just read over that part because it it, this is typical of the sort of person who writes woo-woo literature (laughs) they just they assume that there is no distinction or they make absolutely no distinction between a hydrogen bomb and a nuclear reactor which is weird because you think that he would be on board like he later in the book he talks about the uh energy utilization curve of civilization and mm. that often goes hand in hand with like okay so we'll see, as you exponentiate the the energy utilization and you also grow the population you need to discover new more efficient denser uh greater sources of energy so it's like well we're not going to be burning fossil fuels to to fuel this massive energy guzzling civilization are we <laughs> no we need something else but it can't be can't be nuclear <laughs> Yeah, but he's just, it's just become a meme that people, and particularly from people who talk about the need to reduce emissions and get off hydrocarbon fuels and things like that. We're going to do it with wind turbines. Wind turbines everywhere. Wind turbines. We'll fuel They'll, they'll have this laundry list of all of these characteristics <laughs> that a good energy source will have. They see nuclear, which has all of those characteristics, and go, oh, no, I don't like it. <laughs> if, 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 if you, if, Listeners haven't realised yet, Jack and I really like Bitcoin and are quite partial to nuclear energy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, we should, get, we should get back to the book. Yeah, yeah so, anyway, so... Uh, oh, then he starts talking about... Chapter. Are you going to talk about the West movement stuff? Yeah, yeah, how wealth moves West. He, yeah, yeah, go on. He doesn't justify it, and he doesn't try to, to his credit. He says... I don't know why this happens, but it does, where areas of wealth generation move to the West. So he talked about how you had, say, in the Middle East, that was where the agricultural revolution happened. You had this huge spike in wealth generation there. Then it moved West. It came to Europe. You had this big spike in wealth generation but it, it grew more conservative, chased the wealth out, that moved over the Atlantic to the east coast of the United States, or what is now the United States. Again, big spike in wealth generation, grew conservative. That got chased west to the west coast, which is when 
he was and when when he was writing this the west coast of the US was was where wealth generation was really really happening you assume that in the 80s it's going to it's it's yeah. going to go over the pacific yeah early silicon valley right so yeah come to australia well it hit new zealand first right they're making all that money yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll <laughs> the, the new zealand renaissance the and new then zealand. australia will have its moment <laughs> how long will this it take to how long does it take to traverse the entire australian continent <laughs> yeah conceivably australia could have could have like the u.s got two dips so maybe the east coast of australia will have a go and then it'll be just perth will be great for a while well perth is already got shitloads of money needs to come back east fellas <laughs> But in Australia, we already had the East Coast got a bunch of coal and shit and the West Coast got a bunch of iron ore. It just skipped the middle of the country. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Just so few people live there. Yeah, this is one of those things where, one, he's just, well, he's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should preface the talk about the wealth moving West thing. With I just I don't think this is deterministic in the way that he seems to be making it out to be. Because the other thing is like over the last, say, well since the eighties really, like, well I, I'm not a I'm not an expert on China, but China's seen a huge explosion in wealth and in India, mm-hmm. and I mean they still might be like per capita less wealthy than a lot of Western countries, but the the delta in the increase in wealth and standard of living has been crazy. Um, and that was, like, that was to the east, but I guess it's west of the west coast of the United States, so mm. maybe that still counts <laughs> towards his thesis. I think so. I think so. The thing is, the way he talks about it is he, when he talks about the creation of wealth, because wealth is positively violenced, if something is wealth and not ilf, it needs to, it needs to be concordant with Robert Anton Wilson's first principles, with his, his worldview, and just the way the Chinese Communist Party behaves, I'm not sure he would regard that as a wealth generator. He, he, would, get to, he would get out of it by saying it's ilf, which again... Yeah, it's ilf, so, so it doesn't count. So easily varied. So it, it, it seems very convenient to me. I'm just, I'm just going to put this out there, Jack. But just saying... He really likes West Coast culture. Like he's a big fan of oh, the 60s yeah, man. and sixties uh, West Coast culture in the US. And look, I fucking love acid as well, mate. As much <laughs> as, as the next guy, right? Just you know, not judging the fella, <laughs> but it's kind of a little too convenient that he's like, oh yeah, wealth is going west, and it's so great, and we're doing all this great stuff with the internet and psychedelics over here on the west coast <laughs> and he's also fancy that it's settled where i am it's settled where i am and with all these people who agree with me <laughs> <laughs> how about we move on to yeah. the moral socio-sexual circuit circuit four the last of these so-called antique circuits that are present in every one of us and this is activated and imprinted during adolescence when the sexual apparatus is awakened and it imprints upon the breasts and genitals in his telling. And I think I mentioned this at the start of the episode. What first turns you on 
remains, that, that first imprint, and it can become a fetish. And this is just random. It's pure chance. What, what awakens the fourth circuit? And some cultures actually implement initiation rituals at the times of imprinting to imprint the desired things upon a member of society. So they have the right, I don't know, they get off on the right things or something like that. <laughs> you ask Evelyn, he, he loved initiation rituals. He fucking but... loved it, he loved it. I don't think they were doing psychosexual imprinting though. They were doing like rites of passages for like, oh, you're a man now, you can take on responsibility and shit. But anyways, I'm yeah, sorry, I'm getting ahead I, of myself. What, what, he seems, what he seems to be saying is that part of the reason why they had these these initiation rituals in certain societies say initiation into becoming a man was because this was at the time that the fourth circuit was being imprinted. And so you'd have these rituals that would make sure you imprint upon the right things. Yes. Yes. I understand. I think that's what he's (laughs) saying. That is what that, no, you're correct. That is what he's saying. I shouldn't jump straight into disagreeing with him. (laughs) You're you're correct. the air of truth about it is unmistakable, and that's what led me towards that interpretation of Robert Anton Wilsonism. To start this off, this circuit basically is what mediates morality. Yes. So he has this one quote. He says, most humans do not, due to accidents of this sort, like the bar mitzvahs and stuff, um, imprint exactly the sociosexual role demanded by their society. The fourth circuit can almost be called the guilt circuit. Almost everybody almost everywhere, is quite busy hiding their real sexual profile and miming the quote-unquote accepted sex role for their gender in their tribe. Yeah. So this is where he goes full Freudian. Oh, he's been full Freudian for a while. (laughs) I I just don't think... I I don't think that uh, morality can be boiled down to (laughs) a single parameter such as sex. Sex. I don't like, think morality is purely based on sex, and I don't think your sense of morality only arises when you hit puberty. Yeah, clearly not. Um, uh, yeah. So, why did he? Why did he focus on this? Because uh, there was even Piaget was writing back like quite early back then, so he would have been exposed to Piaget's stuff. Clearly shows that like moral development happens earlier in children. So because because this eight circuit model is or was developed by Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson acknowledges that Wilson says this model is based on Leary's model, maybe Leary justifies it a bit more than Wilson does. But given given that I haven't read Leary's justification for it, it just it seems totally arbitrary why he says, oh, yeah, morality arises when you hit puberty and imprint upon some sort of object of sexual desire. And wasn't this and also upon that Freud's... Is guilt, guilt upon which is built morality. I just, I, I don't know why that's the case. So Freud, it's fine if he says is... it, but why? I haven't read any Freud. You've read Freud, right? So did you read the Taboo book? Freud's no, books. and I, I read Freud years ago. Yeah. Hmm. And Maybe we should read pretty, some Freud. Pretty unconvinced. So he did have a bit that I, I liked, which was uh, a bit after, which is where he talks about specialization is for insects. <laughs> yeah, I liked that. 
As someone resolutely trying to be a jack of all trades, then as so, someone who's so fundamentally dilettantish, that appealed to me. Maybe, maybe I'll just read a little bit. He says, uh, as long as we remain on the antique circuit, so I guess that's circuit one to four, uh, we are not very different from the insects, you know, just doing our automaton things, biosurvival, building cathedrals that look like boobs. Uh, that is, just as the insects repeat their four-stage program, egg, larvae, crystallis, adult, from generation to generation. We repeat our four-stage cycle also. The antique circuits are genetically conservative. They ensure the survival and continuation of the species, but do no more. For future evolution, we must look to the, fu <laughs> to the futuristic circuits. And this is from here onwards. <laughs> it just gets this is when, know. like, <laughs> if, if this you think is... it's been woo-woo so far... <laughs> <laughs> this this is the inflection point in 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 the book where you can say this is where we know it was no this was not a linear increase in in woo woo. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely non-linear woo woo. This is exponential woo woo. Okay, Before we get to exponential yeah, woo woo yeah. though, when he's Sorry, talking God. about the fourth circuit, so he says that morality exists to try to control reproduction and evolution at two points sexual consummation and infanticide so maybe maybe that's some justification for why he links hitting puberty and becoming a moral agent he also has this kind of funny bit about left-handed people and gay people he says that homosexuality and left-handedness go together because these two things probably exist to break us out of our reality tunnels, our established reality tunnels. And for this reason, gay people often became shamans and artists and, <laughs> and don't become parents because they're focused on, on breaking us out of reality tunnels. I just, I just love that. Dude, could I you specifically imagine? noted that part because I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> that's that's what Terrence they're for. McKenna. <laughs> Terrence McKenna's like... Doing ayahuasca and smoking the hashish before going under, and uh, Robert Anton Wilson's there in in the TV with their shaman, and the shaman's like shaking his marimbas and shit. <laughs> but it turns out that the, the, the shaman's like flamingly gay. It's like yes, <laughs> and left-handed left hands the potion. Yes, take this potion. <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson is really, really watching with which hand. The shaman hands mm. Terence McKenna the bowl of ayahuasca with his left hand or his right hand. <laughs> hands is this a reality right tunnel breaking shaman or not? Right, right, right-handed passing. He goes, "You're a fraud, <laughs> fucking fraud." <laughs> <laughs> I know a shaman. He's a high priest of discordism. <laughs> he knows what he's talking about. Oh, actually, the um, cause we need we need to go over the physiognomy of people who who mostly live on the fourth circuit. Oh, did he give one? He says, of, of people in whom the fourth circuit dominates, he says they're beautiful. He says, their entire body has received so many sexual neurotransmitters from the brain that they are constantly radiating the attractive mating signals that make up what is beautiful in a human being. I, 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 I don't know what sexual neurotransmitters are. I was never taught about those, but you got a lot of them when you live on the fourth circuit. I don't. Are there any specifically sexual neurotransmitters? 
There aren't ones that are specific for sex. There aren't, no. there aren't that many different neurotransmitters. No. Yeah. I, again, I'll, get, I'll be generous and just say he might be lumping in, like, the neuroendocrine system as well and saying, like, okay, uh, oxytocin and BDNF and stuff as well will count all that as a neuro- neurotransmitter as well. I'm just going to be generous because he he's not a biologist. He also Jack. maps... <laughs> he, he maps the tension between... Progressivism and conservatism onto the tension between the third and the fourth circuits. He says, um, he says, circuit three unchecked is like a cocaine monologue. You can't remember anything because everything is happening too fast. What circuit three, this time binding semantic circuit that creates new models of reality, it's always pushing forwards, trying to create new symbols, and it, it, it leaves behind an exponentially increasing <laughs> body of symbols because it uses all of the previous symbols that have been generated to generate more symbols. Yeah, he came up with a mathematical equation for it. <laughs> what circuit four does, I think this is where he said it was logarithmic and not exponential. Yeah. <laughs> but I think. And so what circuit four does is he says it serves an evolutionary function, basically just slow things down. What circuit four does is it imposes morality, it imposes a sense of guilt and shame on new things. It yeah. slows stuff down so we don't just get really, really jacked up on circuit three and spin off into the abyss. That's what, <laughs> that's what the, the newer circuits are for. But so, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's a negative feedback on... I just, like, uh, okay... How generous can I be? <laughs> Not very. I'm, I'm trying to I made the commitment last episode, Jack, that I would try to be nice. <laughs> trying to be nice. Um, are there down regulatory? Uh, do parts of our psyche n- negatively uh, have form negative feedback loops onto other parts of our psychology? Presumably, yes. Probably. Probably. Is, it, is, it, is it happening because of our imprinting on our circuit for at the eight, at like 13 years of age to stop us from making too much knowledge? <laughs> I can't give him that much leeway, man. Well, this is, this is the problem. If you just accept all of his first <laughs> principles, you'd say, okay, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. The problem is as soon as you ask, well... Why have you decided that these the third and the fourth circuit exist, function the way that you say they do, and then oppose each other in this evolutionary manner? And why is there an evolutionary teleology stating that circuit three can't progress too quickly, so you have circuit four to slow it down? Yeah. To reach the end point, whatever telos you've decided evolution has, why, why is that the case? At which point, none of this works. And... Here's the thing, here's the weird thing, is literally on, uh, well, I got the Kindle version, so I don't know which page, oh no, it's page 125, he has circuit four as being younger than circuit three by about 70,000 years. So circuit three, the, the time-binding circuit, mm. is 100,000 years old, and circuit four, the down-regulating... Uh, guilt circuit is 30,000 years. So there's 70,000 years worth of exponentiating time binding. Like, why did 
circuit four come into existence only 30,000 years ago and what was happening for the 70,000 years of accumulated time binding and why... Why didn't we just see this massive exponential increase in knowledge then? Why don't we have sites like like complex ancient societies from more than 30,000 years ago? How come all of our complex ancient society evidence is from like 10 to 20,000 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> just, just, well, this, just, this is why you you need you need <laughs> an archaeologist like Terence McKenna to come in and and talk about how human society evolved from the mushroom so, people. Oh, dude, could you imagine plateau in modern day Algeria eating could, magic mushrooms? Could you imagine sitting down at a dinner and sitting? With these two cooked fucking primates <laughs> having just Man, hit, hit, hit a blunt together, and now they're just bouncing off each other with all their kooky ideas. <laughs> I would probably shoot them. <laughs> you just get so sick. Do you reckon you just go insane? <laughs> yeah, you just turn into them. I feel like Terence McKenna and also Anton Wilson had like they had like good. Um, they had like good starting material. They were probably smart young people, mm. you know, <laughs> when they when they were like yeah. eighteen or twenty. And then by the time they were middle aged and they were writing these books <laughs> after a lifetime of taking psychedelics and smoking too much weed, they produced these like <laughs> mammoth books of just rambling nonsense. Yeah, it it really spun out of control. They probably could have done with a bit more fourth circuit input, I'd say. Oh yeah. <laughs> anyway, should we should we go on? Yeah. I just want to mention though, one of the exercises for this section was try to change your sexual imprint. Basically get off to something that you think is taboo or unthinkable. So I'd <laughs> go watch f- furry porn or something. <laughs> Some tentacles or something, whatever you're into. Yeah. Scat. <laughs> That's just some two girls, one cup of shit. <laughs> Force yourself to watch. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I might quickly actually just, not, not the entire table, but just to give everybody Wilson's uh, chronology. He says, circuit one is three to four billion years old. Circuit two is 500 to 500 million to a billion years old. Circuit three is 100,000 years old. Circuit four is 30,000 years old. Now, mm-hmm. again, I'll give him credit. Say he was working off modern science. Uh, he might adjust those appropriately to more reflect like more modern up-to-date ideas of how old the human species is. But yeah, it, it, this maps, these build up, um, uh, these correspond to kind of evolutionary co- chronology essentially <laughs> which is where we start having fun times with circuit five <laughs> you ready to move on yeah he's got he's got a few chapters on brainwashing and stuff can we skip over those because i don't think is it can we, think we can really... we summarize can we summarize them okay yeah so basically from a from a, from a high level because i think yeah the, you... the d brainwashing stuff is kind of part of the further but yeah, I'm happy to skip like going into the, going into detail. Yeah, but so he says 
Human society as a whole is a vast brainwashing machine whose semantic rules and sex roles create a social robot. So basically, you use circuits one and two to create reality tunnels. So concepts of how the world works, which reside in circuits three and four, and that's how you brainwash people. First, you terrify someone you knock them back to that first circuit. So you make them feel like they're in bodily danger. So you, you stand over them or something like that. You can take away their food. You make them cold. In capitalist societies, you take away their money because people now have imprinted upon money as their, their bio-survival tickets. Having done that, you establish their position in a hierarchy. You start acting on, on circuit two. So you, as the person trying to brainwash someone, you make sure that they know that they're subordinate to you, but you convince them that they're superior to everyone else, everyone outside of this group that you're trying to brainwash them into, like, say, a cult or a religion, something like that. You do this by providing them with knowledge that, or some sort of worldview that sounds reasonable on the whole, but you include within it parts that are intentionally completely unreasonable. And they're going to force themselves over time to accept these things. And these extremely unreasonable things serve two functions. One, just the, the sheer mental effort that someone has to expend to finally accept these will further drive them into brainwash territory. And two, it makes them feel so superior to people who aren't part of this group that believes these unreasonable things. It's, it's playing on this this second circuit, the sense of superiority and dominance. And, yeah, it, like, I, th- I think that's basically what he says in these, these yeah. brainwashing parts. And that's essentially a preamble because a lot of the latest stuff in the book is, I suppose, de-brainwashing or deconditioning. Yeah. So he, he does spend an inordinate amount of time talking about this brainwashing stuff. And uh, unless you have anything else to add, I just wanted to make a quick note that he also talks yeah. about syn- synchronicity. That's Anything? exactly what I was wanting to talk okay. about. All right. Cool. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, okay, so uh, I'll let you explain it. Um, I'm close, but I, I just want to say that I'm on a quest. One of my quests in, in doing this podcast is to find the origin of some of the memes that I hate. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate, I hate with a passion the synchronicity meme. I uh, was recently in Ubud, Bali, which, for those of you who don't know, Ubud, Bali is one of the meccas of hippie dippy, <laughs> wee woo, wee woo shit. And uh, I fucking like, look, I love yoga. It's so much fun. I really like it. Uh, but. Just the woo-woo is ridiculous. And Ubud, people who like yoga, they read like, what is that? What was that book called? Love, Love, Live, Laugh, Fucking Go to Ubud. There's some book that every every other girl in fucking Melbourne apparently read and wanted to go to Ubud and do yoga. <laughs> and literally in the cafe, I overheard, <laughs> overheard uh, two of the people 
<laughs> like and the table over <laughs> like oh yeah this happened and this happened and then they're like synchronicity synchronicity <laughs> <I'm> like <laughs> I, I had to resist like telling them to go fuck themselves fuck off. Like, <laughs> no please don't talk about that but it's a thing people really believe in it now i think mm. a lot of people got into it because of things like um what was that book the uh the the the, the secret like the secret or something the secret and then people like uh um that uh the guy who talks about quantum consciousness stuff who we need to read uh and now uh robert anton wilson so there's all these people who talk about synchronicity apparently jung now is talking about it so jung I and mean, maybe you have to read some jung so i want to find the bottom of the synchronicity crap <laughs> i think it's probably been with us Forever, but basically, when he talks about synchronicities, he just seems to be talking about super coincidences, just really, really unlikely. You just sound like a cerebratonic rationalist, Jack. I'm I'm not tall. <laughs> have you tried? To be have you tried breaking out of your? Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a six foot yes. six pencil. <laughs> yeah. So may I just pull up a quote about? I've got a quote here. He says. Okay. Carl Jung, the psychologist, and Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist, had a name for coincidence of that order of eeriness. They called them synchronicities and said they represented an actual and or holistic principle in nature that acts outside the linear past-present-future of Newtonian time. So it's just, it's a coincidence. It's a coincidence that is really weird and seems unlikely, but... Is probably it's probably more likely that you had these two chance events that seem to have some sort of relationship. That is more likely than what they are proposing, that there is this whole underlying structure of the universe that Wilson has now uncovered that explains why these seemingly disparate events are actually fundamentally linked. In terms of likelihood, one of these proposed explanations involves creating an entire cosmology and a new metaphysics to describe it yes which to me seems less likely but don't don't multiply entities beyond uh, necessity wouldn't you say jack <laughs> mm. so one of the things he says and so the, i do a quick quote because he's he's smashing together he's smashing together quantum physics and jungian psychology in this sort of horrible monster that he then uses to justify synchronicity. Pauli, like most quantum physicists, was aware that subatomic events cannot be understood in Newtonian terms and must require some sort of a-causality, indeterminism, or holism, superdeterminism, to explain them. In either case, the distinction between observer and observed breaks down. So that's like the woo-woo people jumped on quantum stuff. (laughs) They jumped on it because yeah. of this this quantum in uh, observability stuff, which is not well understood, and some people think that Pauli's interpretation is nonsense or not not nonsense, but you know, like it's early incorrect interpretation. Now we have better interpretations, uh, but they won't let it go. Like even now, I see I see the woo woo people still talking about the <laughs> quantum observer effect. And it's like, shut the fuck up about the quantum observer. <laughs> yeah. You're not making reality. Well, my problem is, 
I did a semester of physics in first year uni, but I don't understand <laughs> quantum physics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't understand quantum field theory. But from from the perspective of someone who is not well educated in this in this field, it seems to me that in large part woo woo people love quantum stuff because it's really weird and has so many areas and and is not understood well by the general public. So there are so many areas that they can hide in and say, oh, look, there's this theory that prestigious people at universities work on and believe in that justifies synchronicities or asking the universe for a favour and the universe will give it to you, any sort of stuff that they peddle. There are so many local nooks of uncertainty and lack of knowledge that they can hide in, that it's perfect for them. Yes, yeah. And I am I'm studying not physics, but like a, a field that requires a lot of headspace. And uh, it's incredibly difficult to like learn one like fairly abstract field. Like it takes it takes years. <laughs> it takes a lot of work, <laughs> and and to think that you can read like one guru's half a paragraph on like quantum quantum theory or something, and all of a sudden think that synchronicities exist. Like it's just is completely ridiculous. It's um. Yeah, it's 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 a it's it's almost it. I I th- I think that I would if I were a physicist I would be very deeply upset. <laughs> People are abusing my field. <laughs> Anyways, we should move on. <laughs> yeah, let's go on to the the fifth circuit. So the first of these these evolutionary these new circuits, the holistic neurosomatic circuit. I think basically this circuit is faith healing. What what this circuit is, so the first yep. four circuits are active in in basically everyone or in most people. He says he says there are some primitive people in the world in whom the the third circuit doesn't exist. But for most people, these four first four circuits exist. Yeah. So I would agree with you. Yeah, sum it up like circuit. Sorry, is this circuit five? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Faith, faith healing. It's just like faith healing. Basically, Jesus. Jesus. you can think yourself better. Yeah. Not everyone has this, this circuit turned on. Circuits five to eight aren't present in everyone. But using things like, say, um, yoga, like certain types of breathing, cannabis or, say, smoking hash can turn this on. <laughs> Can it just switch on <laughs> this circuit? It can lead to very negative experiences. It can be really unpleasant. It can say make sound and touch painful or anxiety inducing for, for some reason. It can also be blissful. So the, the thing with circuits five, six, seven, and eight is they're very, very abstract. And our problems with him seeming to just make things up and then say that it fits into this schema of human consciousness, those problems are only accentuated with these higher circuits. Like with circuit five, he just says, oh, it can be awful and make sounds and touch painful or it can be blissful. He doesn't 
bother trying to justify this. It's this is just the he doesn't, way he doesn't explain works. It. He doesn't actually explain a lot of things. And, he says and these, the fifth these circuit are the... is where the nervous system directs the body, which uh, apparently so cere- say, cerebellum, skeletal, like, skeletal it... muscle didn't contract <laughs> in response be, be... to a nervous impulse. Before a hundred thousand, it does under the influence of the fifth circuit. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I think, uh, like he just keeps on jacking. He just he does he outdoes himself with every chapter. (laughs) Yeah, but like the the, the, this is the takeoff point in the exponential. I wish I wish I could say that it it sort of levels out at some point, but it doesn't. (laughs) No, no, it's just it's more and more woo woo from here. And this is kind of like his. Circuit five, six, seven, eight is like he calls them the futuristic circuits, and mm-hmm. he's kind of saying like these circuits are encoding what evolution wants for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. Like yeah. it's it's a premonition, yeah. and it might for some reason it it's like I don't know dormant in everybody, but it might not be turned on in everybody. He doesn't really like explain any of this, but for some reason, for the last two thousand years at least, for since at least Jesus doing faith healings, uh, maybe Buddha as well. Some people can do it, and some people can do it now. And presumably, at some point in the future, everybody will be able to do this. The thing is, I don't understand why people like Wilson and McKenna and stuff why they can't just say, "Hey." Maybe they're charlatans. <laughs> maybe these people are just full of shit. Like maybe there's not. Maybe there isn't a magic stick that fixes your back pain. <laughs> maybe there isn't. Maybe snake oil is just snake oil. <laughs> yeah. What you were saying about faith healing from from at least the time of Jesus, he did actually put a number on how old yeah. this circuit is. Probably arose 300,000 odd years ago because there's evidence of cave paintings in Europe which seem to show exercises to increase right brain activity. He does not talk about what a cave painting demonstrating an exercise in improving the capacity of the right brain to act would look like, but... That also (laughs) contradicts... They exist. This is all, it's also important to note. So, well. <laughs> you know how, so obviously, <laughs> verbal fluency, the third circuit, is tied to being right-handed, which is tied to being left-brained. The, the fifth circuit, the holistic neurosomatic circuit, resides in the right brain. It doesn't, review, it doesn't view things linearly or in sequence like the third brain does. It views things holistically. So... That's that's why he can look at these these cave paintings from three hundred thousand years ago in Europe and say, okay, well, obviously, they were working with their right brains, which means that the holistic neurosomatic circuit must have been working. It's um, it, it's like it's like pornography. You just know it when you see it. <laughs> Evidence <laughs> of. of <laughs> and when does holism? <laughs> Like, I know there's always, you know, look at things from a systematic perspective. Sometimes it will, there'll be emergent behavior that isn't obvious from just a decompositional analysis of the thing. But holism, that word, often to me, is like a red flag. Like, I'm mm. reading or consuming or listening to some woo-woo shit right now. <laughs> uh, it's always yeah, this word. 
a holism it's like well what's holism are you just kind of like just say well we treat everything <laughs> we just do whatever we want <laughs> <laughs> do whatever i want put some crystals over your forehead and you'll be fucking fine mate <laughs> what when i hear holism i basically interpret it as well i'm not going to be bothered being systematic anymore yep <laughs> i'll just do whatever because i'm being holistic and i'm looking at the whole Anything, your whole whatever I'm meant to be doing. And where do you where do you draw the line between one hole and the next? You know, <laughs> <laughs> is it you know because they're not satisfied with looking at cell, they will say, well, you know, it's not just a cell. Like you, you, what about the organ? Well, the organs integrate into the whole body. It's like, well, what the whole body's integrated mm. to a society. So, do we need to analyze the entire society, the entire culture, the entire fucking world, the entire history of everything, like, to, in order to like fix your cold, mate? <laughs> just, just yeah. give me some pseudo ephedrine. Okay. <laughs> I just, I want to do some stretches and give me some neurofin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also just. Basically, I just view it as one, I'm not going to be bothered being systematic. And two, anything that is holistic is positively balanced. Yeah, what it's, about it's holistic evil? Holistic torture. <laughs> holistic <We're> torture. <laughs> On every level, I'll torture you. Yeah, it's like in GTA 5, you can do the torture thing. <laughs> I've got a holistic torture on you, motherfucker. Yeah, means... Pull out the blowjob. <laughs> okay so yeah so basically the fifth circuit lets you lets you step outside of these antique circuits and that somehow fixes problems with your body i've got i've got a good quote i've got a good quote yeah okay so okay this is a little bit of a long one should be fine though. the faith healer went on what cures them is realizing that i'm not afraid uh, that is contact with the fifth circuit personality, a person who controls his or her own circuit to adrenaline trips can be a catalyst, throwing the sufferer upward into a personal fifth circuit experience. So he's talking about how faith healers work. And then he says, the avant-garde 20% of the population due to the consciousness movement, i.e. a secularization of much ancient shamanic wisdom, already understands every quote-unquote wild idea in the last few pages they have had enough neurosomatic experience to know that they were once totally roboticized as most people still are and are knowingly engaged in acquiring more neurosomatic know-how when mm. this when this trend of more people basically acquiring more neurosomatic know-how for faith healing when this reaches 51 percent of the population a major historical revolution will have occurred revolution will have occurred as profound as the life extension revolution and then he says yep then he has a little asterisk and he's like please reread this sentence and think about it <laughs> he's like this is very <laughs> this is this is very important i when, remember that bit yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> when when 51 percent of people really fucking get down with faith healing we're fucking off to the races with life extension fellas <laughs> he literally bet his life on it yeah, yeah, the rest of this chapter's kind of weird. There's this bit where he talks about sex robots. Yeah, well, we got those. <laughs> that was one of his he's correct He's basically predictions. saying, imagine if we could make a totally programmed sexual environment, how good it would be. So he, d he goes through each of the somatic, each, each of the, the circuits of consciousness and how you would 
optimize this this robo brothel to hit all of those in just the right way like, and then like the says hol- oh, the holodeck yeah imagine how good that'd be well the fifth circuit is better it feels better than that that's how good the fifth circuit is <laughs> fuck yeah give me some fifth circuit uh, it's pretty weird <laughs> pretty weird chapter and then you get to the next chapter and it gets weirder uh, the collective really neurogenetic circuit so this is circuit. Are we circuit up to six? six? Is that the correct one? Yeah, yeah. we're up to six. six. Yeah, this this is one where his knowledge of of, of molecular biology, I think, really came to oh, is this, are you to bite him have, in the ass. Are you gonna, um, gonna have a he few says comments to make there? The sixth Mr. circuit Jack. of the brain kicks into action when the nervous system begins to receive signals from within the individual neuron. From the RNA-DNA dialogue, the neurogenetic feedback mechanism. Um, I, I, I just don't know what that means. Nervous system begins to receive signals from within the individual neuron. I mean, in the sense that the neurotransmitters within a neuron are the result of, of producing proteins as encoded by the DNA within that neuron's nucleus... I suppose it is receiving messages from within the neuron. But so he starts off by saying things that don't make sense, but then he progresses to saying things which is wrong. Maybe though we should start out by saying what this circuit is before I complain about just the the minutiae, which which isn't that, it's, it's probably not that interesting. Basically, long story short, he talks about DNA and RNA a lot and he's just wrong. He just doesn't know what he's talking about. So what, what this circuit does is... It lets you get, con- get, get access to your DNA archives, conscious access. And in these oh, DNA yeah, archives, turns yeah, yeah. out your DNA contains memories of past lives. The, this is the, the part of your consciousness where things like Jung's archetypes of the collective unconscious live. It also, so it doesn't just include evolutionary memory of the past, but evolutionary memory or premonitions of the future because turns out in your dna not only are memories of past lives encoded but your dna knows where it wants to evolve to it's got got the blueprint of where we're going already in there you don't agree with that for some reason for some reason despite wanting to get there it's not Letting us go there until we've read Prometheus Rising, <laughs> and, and then and then you can evolve. But oh, just, <laughs> there were so many problems I had with this chapter. <laughs> so you don't agree that our DNA has intentions for the species and is trying to get to a particular form <laughs> to I evolve just... to next level of Super Saiyan. <laughs> That's a speech. Yeah. <laughs> he so says, on, well, well, he says yeah. the neurogenetic circuit is best considered in terms of current science as the genetic archives activated by excitement of antihistone proteins, the DNA memory coiling back to the dawn of life and continuing also the genetic blueprints for the future of evolution. It's like, did, did, does he mean histone acetyltransferases? Uh, are the agents of the sixth circuit is were they even discovered in the 80s maybe they were but even if they were okay 
they change gene expression, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not actual. They don't actually change the D- DNA code. No, basically. So DNA basically DNA is really long, and to make it fit within the nucleus of a cell, it's coiled up around proteins called histones, and these are all packaged up into what's called chromatin, and that makes up your chromosomes, so that so that your body basically can read from the DNA, it will unwind bits of the DNA from the these histones so that certain certain enzymes or proteins can access that DNA. When he talks about antihistone proteins, I assume that's what he's he's talking about. Give but, him the most generous okay, give him the most generous <laughs> interpretation you can and see what happens. Um <laughs> really pushing on this one. That's I, I assume he's Okay, assume that's about, what he means. Assume that's what he I, means. I, I assume he's talking about acetylation and deacetylation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of histones. For some reason though, this is <laughs> when you achieve the, the requisite level of consciousness and get to the sixth circuit of consciousness, you can consciously control histone acetylation access whichever parts of your genome you want whenever instead of this leaving leading to complete gene dysregulation and and it will lead to you being able to see past lives because explicit memories of those are apparently in your dna as well as future lives because apparently your dna now contains the blueprint for for your future selves which because they are evolving will be better than you at least in the telling <laughs> at, at least how robert anton wilson describes it for some reason your dna doesn't want to be expressing those better selves yet cuz he he talks about how evolution is aiming towards this state where human beings don't have war we don't die we don't have disease we don't have anything bad cuz we're going to evolve our consciousnesses to get to that state however we've got all these problems in the world because we haven't got there yet most of us are still living on these antique circuits so you've got this thing that is so obviously in the in our interests it would be so good for everything but for some reason we've got the blueprints as in every cell in our bodies except red blood cells but it's not expressing just just cause it just just isn't, and and I just, I just don't I I don't get it. I don't understand. And you can go down using your mind into your cells, and tweak tweak what's happening in them using your mind. Yeah, apparently. And you can you can and, tweak you can tweak that, but when he's talking about <laughs> altering the acetylation of histones, <laughs> he seems to be sounds, specifically referring so to pained, Jack. <laughs> living past lives. But I mean, that, that's bad enough, but just the thing about how in your DNA you already have the blueprint for what you will evolve into, but even though it is just a better version of us in every way, we're not we're just not using it for some reason. It's not being expressed. So it's already in you. 
it's already in us. It's already taking up space and resources, but we're just not using it. And, and he weird... doesn't explain why. He's just like, oh, we need we need to attain a higher level of consciousness for the continuation of our species, and so that Prometheus may rise. But it's just it's just not happening for some reason. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't the obvious thing be for for an animal just to express these genes and in expressing them, it would already be at a higher level of consciousness. So the necessity to attain a higher level of consciousness using these inferior genes or the inferior DNA blueprint would be obviated. This this chapter just didn't make any sense at all. And and another interesting one was... Yeah, that's okay. I mean, that's. I mean, kind of completely. It's just, it's just completely bonkers. It just completely doesn't it's, make any sense. So, but the the other thing is like the thing he says about the past lives is is like, it's uh it's demonstrating something that he's been doing the entire book, but also the woo woo types do all the time is they just mm. find like something about something that's come out of science, some scientific field, in this case, genetics, right? And they, they shoehorn in, like, their pre-existing weird, kooky thing that they already believe, yeah. <laughs> that they want to believe, like, oh, well, I want to believe in, like, uh, past lives. Now we've got, like, a mechanism that the scientists say <laughs> is transmitting information from one generation to the next. So that's how we'll get the past lives into the scientific rationalism. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, like, just from a pure, like, information science point of view, like, the the human genome isn't a, a very big data store. Like, if I just look online, apparently, uh, it's a... Uh, corresponds to a maximum of about 700 megabytes of data and be compressed mm -hmm. or whatever. So 700 megabytes of data, you know, like when I was a kid, I, I got like a one gigabyte MP3 player for like my 12th birthday. So I mean, blew my mind, man. And now a one gigabyte MP3 player, like fucking, you couldn't give that to somebody if you gave that to somebody. <laughs> like that thing, like, what, do you, what, what do you do with a gigabyte? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Thanks. it's not that much information, but he's saying we're recording memories in the DNA, in addition to building like all the instructions to build the organism, we're also yeah. from one generation to the next for how many generations we're storing actual memories. So audio visual memories, presumably at the very least, which uh, it's quite a lot of data. <laughs> like, where's all the data going? <laughs> we don't have, it's, it's, there's not that much space there to put all this information, mm -hmm. but he, of course, I mean, and he should, like, he's an electrical... Apparently, he did electrical engineering. He should have thought about this for, like, two seconds. But whatever. He wanted to He wanted to give a justification for it. Like, and this is the thing. What the thinker thinks, the prover proves. Yeah. <laughs> you expect the amount of space used, though, for memories would be exactly the same because it contains past <laughs> and future memories, which, <laughs> which means he must be a determinant. Like, he must view... Human behavior deterministically, be. like we've got no, these memories he, he from the future, which are already track. in your DNA, <laughs> which means that you mustn't have free will because you're gonna do these things in the future anyway. Which yeah, calls into question your his thing about how 
Well, you know how he's talking about, oh, with imprinting. It's just, it's random what's happening at the time of imprint vulnerability. Well, no, that can't be the case because you already have a your, premonition in your DNA of what you will be doing in the future, which means yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter what happens at the time of imprint vulnerability because it is preordained what you're going to do. So he yeah, like, yeah, yeah. with this thing, he just erases <laughs> free will. He erases basically everything he said beforehand as well because... None of the other circuits matter. It's all already on the sixth circuit in your DNA, what you are going to do. So... <laughs> he, um, I, he just keeps on jumping the shark. He's just jumping the shark every fucking sentence at this point. <laughs> yeah. He just so keeps he, escalating as well. Each chapter just gets wackier and is wackier. Is there anything else from this chapter? Oh, the, the, the images that he's got in this chapter are pretty funny. He's got this, he's got this uh, goat, like one of those goat people from like Greek. What are they called? The Greek, the Greek little... Oh, the Minotaur the, or... Satir, no, Satir, Satirs or something. Oh, the Satyr. Is this the one with the Satyr carrying like this big... Like, or, like, it looks like a, <laughs> yeah. a black stone penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good with little ghosts in it. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> little little demon goat with his freaking dildo. Um, yeah. Is there anything else funny? Did he have any funny exercises for this chapter? He did have one exercise. He was saying that contemplating the Sixth Circuit often leads to synchronicities and see how long it takes for you to contemplate the sixth circuit and then encounter a synchronicity. And the example yeah, of a synchronicity yeah, yeah. that he used was a license plate reading DNA. Yeah. yeah and there's yeah. just, there's no other possible explanation for that yeah. than he's, a he's, synchronicity. He's getting you to think, to like look for, look for things to confirm <laughs> like this entire fucking book is founded on the premise of just reinforcing your own beliefs and <laughs> then and then the next exercise proof. after that was try explaining this in circuit three rationalist terms and that really irritated me because he goes oh, okay so i'm i'm keeping an open mind i'm being unbiased here i'm just saying try to observe a synchronicity, like presupposing that there are synchronicities. And then the next thing is, oh, we'll try explaining this from a rationalist perspective, implicitly saying that that is the wrong perspective to take. So he, he preempts the obvious problem that someone would have with his worldview, except he doesn't acknowledge that the reason that this is an obvious problem with his worldview is because his worldview is incoherent. No, it's because we're trapped on the third circuit, whereas he is operating on the sixth. Oh, I think he's operating on the ninth, mate. <laughs> I think he's transcended. All <laughs> he's the gone circuits. beyond the eight circuits. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. It, it's one. What is uh? What does um? Idea. You know how like, I think I've said this before, so I won't go rant about it too much. But like, communism can always respin any assault on communism or Marxism as like. They like, oh, well, we shouldn't listen to economists because they're just uh, reinforcing the bourgeois, the um, class mm. agenda. Or like, um, Freudians can always just say, like, oh yeah, or well, you're just that's just your repressed, like, uh, you're re repressing some some weird psychological complex or whatever. So 
he he's constructing he's kind of going i mean he's heavily informed by marxism he references hegel marx and freud throughout this <laughs> and, although uh, he doesn't like marxism interestingly he he yeah, makes yeah. fun of it a few times he does he, well he, make, he probably makes he makes fun of almost every does he make fun of freud but um he's kind of set it up to to almost be the same way like he can always just uh say well yeah as jack was saying you can always uh spin your opponent's criticism into your framework and then like discredit them saying oh well you're operating at a low you're operating on a lower circuit and then so you're not ready to understand whatever so um (laughs) because the sixth circuit was convincing enough we've got the seventh the meta programming circuit which is even better i like this I like this idea, meta programming. So they really like they like talking about like reprogramming your own mind, reprogramming yeah. your consciousness using practices like uh, yoga, pranayama breathing, and stuff. <laughs> yeah, the the meta programming circuit basically is the brain becoming aware of itself, or the the conscious entity becoming aware of themselves as an entity that creates reality or at least creates the impression of reality he talks about ufos and miracles and things like that i I think we can skip over his ufo tour yeah let's skip over that stuff (laughs) it's not interesting so what he says basically the way to sum up what the metaprogramming circuit is and does and i think actually he gets more reasonable when he's talking about the metaprogramming circuit i think this was easier to to try to justify (laughs) he says what i see with my eyes closed and my eyes open is the same stuff brain circuitry so what he's basically saying is that with the metaprogramming circuit everything you see you hear you touch taste etc is a representation by your brain of some sort of stimulation of sensory receptors It's not actually, say, in the world, whatever is external to human beings. There is not something that is red. Red is is a quality of a particular object outside of you as interpreted by your brain. It's basically your brain's user interface to try to help you or help itself make sense of the external world has an element in its user interface called red or that we call red. There are so many different things in the world that we can't directly sense. Like, say, ultraviolet radiation. We can't see it. It's, we can sense it in the sense that oh, you get sunburned. So that's, a, that's I guess, some, some way of detecting ultraviolet radiation. But we can't see it. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that we're not able to detect it and our brain doesn't then put that into our user interface basically it doesn't put it into the world that you can see i think that's basically what he's saying yeah and he said a bunch of stuff about like it being recursive yeah what was that like oh the the whole thing about how the brain can or the consciousness can contemplate itself contemplating itself which means it can contemplate itself contemplating itself contemplating itself and you just do yeah. that forever. Yeah, and uh, also something uh, ironic that you're like the universe thinking about itself and all this sort of stuff. Like, it's, it's all fun. <laughs> it's, all, it's all whatever. There's probably like, 
it's a uh, it wasn't as problematic as the previous chapter but it also wasn't that i guess that that interesting <laughs> he said uh uh the one part of the chapter i liked i i highlighted which was he was he was kind of referencing Buck, Buckminster Fuller anyways, but he said uh, Buckminster Fuller illustrates the meta-programming circuit in his lectures by pointing out that we feel puny in comparison to the size of the universe, but only our bodies, i.e. our hardware, are puny. Our minds, he says, by which he means our software, contains the universe by the act of comprehending it. I was like, oh yeah, that's mm. nice. But of course he's just quoting... He's kind of quoting somebody else. <laughs> like, uh, At least he read uh, someone interesting. Uh, Buckminster Fuller sounds like an interesting guy. I should probably read him. He goes on in a following chapter to talk about the, the metaprogramming circuit more. Basically, he, he talks about how yourself is created by your brain. And like artists, we, cre- we curate our personalities by only remembering certain things by being conditioned and imprinted in certain ways, by having certain hardwired instinctual behaviours, the metaprogramming circuit allows you to realise that this curation is taking place and then consciously control it. So you can just remake your personality. Which, yeah, okay, it wasn't. You, prob- you probably can within certain, some range, right? Presumably. Like, uh,. Like self reflection, therapy, whatever. Uh, I don't know if you can fully just rewrite your temperament and your personality. <laughs> mm. Kind of what he's saying, though. I've got a quote that sums it up. He says, If we confront the void without ideas, we see only a muddle, the formless void that existed before God, intellect stated to create a universe, a system, in Genesis. Once we become the image of God by making our own universe, we have a model of the model. The model is very convenient. We could not be human without it, but it is also very misleading whenever we forget that we have created it. So I think, I think that's more or less what he's saying in this, this chapter. This chapter was easier to accept than when he was talking about Circuit 6, but as you said, it's not actually that interesting saying that we don't directly perceive reality. Instead, we perceive a construct our brain makes to represent, however imperfectly, whatever reality is outside of us using inputs from our sensory organs. Yeah, that's fine. I'm not gonna, fine. I'm not going to object to that. <laughs> uh, different models, different models. He, oh, yeah, you've, you've read James Joyce, haven't you? He really likes James Joyce. Yeah, I've read... I've read Dubliner's Portrait of the Artist and Ulysses. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake, and Finnegan's Wake is the one he frothes over, froths over in this. I just, I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, he he has so many quotes. I'd say he quotes Finnegan's Wake more than any other source. Yeah, in the which might give you some indication as to the coherence of this book. He's <laughs> supposed to be supposed to be. He was apparently submitting this as a PhD thesis. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or intending to. And he's like quoting a stream of consciousness, a notoriously difficult to follow stream of consciousness book. It, right? So, yeah. <laughs> it's informed his, his uh, philosophy on, on the eight circuit model. Okay. Uh, what now? 
chapter 15 yeah. it's different models and different models so i'm just refreshing what different models and different models is him just talking about the seventh circuit a little bit more the meta programming circuit so he for some reason he drops into like talking about himself in like the third person so he starts saying like robert anton wilson is the author of cosmic trigger schrodinger's cat sex and drugs and several other books like mr saxon and mr white previous people he mentioned in the chapter Wilson does not get reviewed in the liberal magazines that decide which authors are important, but he has a wide readership among science fiction fans, political libertarians, and veterans of the consciousness revolution. Wilson believes, and this is basically where he lists out all of his like beliefs about the future and stuff. Um, Wilson believes that life extension techniques and intelligence-raising drugs, psychedelics, <laughs> will be discovered in this decade and will be widely available by 2010. Less radical than Dr. Silverstein, Wilson does not expect immortality be, to be achieved until the middle of the next century, but he expects life extension drugs will keep him, in, will keep him around until then. <laughs> Wilson expend, expects most of humanity will have migrated off Earth into space by 2028. He expects that with higher intelligence and longer lives than past humanity, these post-terrestrials will gradually become superhuman by comparison with our historical average. Wilson believes that these are good guesses based on scientific probabilities, but he does not think there are any hard economic or karmic laws guaranteeing them. He recognizes that this reality tunnel was generated by his own brain, that he is the artist who created it, and that it expresses his own hopes and desires, as well as scientific probabilities. <laughs> yep. Uh, so good. He hedges his bets with the reality tunnel card. <laughs> he applies that concept to himself at convenient moments. Yes. Yes. I'll I'll give him that much. Snafu. Should we do Snafu? Yeah, this part's so he, he complains about intelligence agencies quite a lot in this this um this it, chapter. It, no, I was just like, where did this come from? <laughs> When yeah, this chapter like, is kind of out of nowhere. He, why is he talking about this? Is he talking He's about talking about how... <laughs> so he calls it the snafu principle, or Selene's law. He says that communication is only possible between equals. The, the reason why this is the case, he says, adequate communication flows freely between equals. Communication between non-equals is warped and distorted by second circuit domination and submission rituals, perpetuating communication jams and a game without end. What he means is that the person on top of a dominance hierarchy is only going to hear what they want to hear from their subordinates who, for reasons of operating on the second circuit, defer to this person's authority, ultimately for reasons of operating on the first circuit because they're worried about some sort of threat to their bodily integrity, to their health, if they, if they don't act submissively towards the person in charge, if they don't do what that person wants them to do and don't keep them happy. Sure. The person on the top of the hierarchy then must effectively see for the whole organisation the so-called burden of omniscience because... No one below them on the hierarchy is going to tell them what's actually going on. So the person on top has to be able to work everything out for themselves and guide the organisation by doing that. And therefore, rigid bureaucratisation sets in 
He then starts talking about intelligence services and secret police forces and says that these services all need a second intelligence service or secret police service to make sure that people within the first secret police service or intelligence service are behaving themselves. There is a recursion to infinity here. And he says it's not, it's not possible to have infinite layers of surveillance or police, which makes rulers paranoid. And so conspiracy theories proliferate. He complains about the government a bit. Um, making the situation worse, intelligence services will spread disinformation to other intelligence services as well as trying to withhold information. Remember, all of these organisations are operating at the whim of whomever is on top who is having to do all of the seeing for the organisation and so nothing works. That's the that's the chapter. Uh, I, it, this just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't I really was, know I why. Was, I was genuinely confused when I was reading this. I actually went back to the start of the chapter and was like, wait a second, what's going, what's going on? I actually, I, I, I looked at the chapter numbers. Services? Yeah. I looked at the chapter <laughs> numbers and thought that maybe I'd like, in my edition, I, they'd missed a chapter or something. But <laughs> no, he just, this is much more what I was expecting. When you first said we should read this book, the complaining about the government and intelligence services, and he stuff had like to that. get it in there, didn't he? he had to, he, he, where else was it going to go? Really, yeah. <laughs> might as well have gone. I did like the exercises, though. <laughs> Two of the exercises: one was assume that your phone is bugged, and another was assume that someone's reading your mail. Both of which are true. <laughs> At least, if you're using email, like if you use Gmail, there's some sort of uh, probably not a person, but that's definitely being monitored. Your phone, yes. uh, it's just a surveillance device. That's happening. So these weren't exercises. This is just how I think all the time. And I like, so at least I there was that. I didn't have to put in much effort with this. I've, I found, yeah, mine, it's just surveillance stuff all the time, yeah. Um, and again, podcasting. Well, <laughs> Docs ourselves. Um, uh, I like, I like that. <laughs> Number three was look around for evidence that your co-workers or neighbours think you're a bit queer and are planning to have you committed to a mental hospital. Number four, try living a whole week. Oh, no, number five, try living a whole month with the program. I've chosen to be aware of this particular reality. So he's like giving people like, these exercises to like bug them out. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, what are you doing? Like, imagine if somebody actually did this and it's just like kept on repeating to themselves for a week on, on Robert Anton Wilson's advice. Like, yeah, my fucking neighbors are like trying to get me put into a mental asylum, man. <laughs> and this is also the sort of person who's like reading Terence McKenna and smoking heaps of weed. <laughs> yeah, with him, you feel like just sitting him down and saying, mate, give. Give the drugs a rest for at least a week. <laughs> Maybe this weekend, just go for a bushwalk or something. Yeah, this is Don't thing with, uh, with the question of, can you take too many psychedelics? <laughs> and and yes, with Terrence McKenna, we, yes. And now with Robert Anton Wilson, we think, yes, you can. And yes, with his, you, you can overdo it. With, with his, his, one of his favorite people, Timothy, Timothy Leary. Yes, fucking yes, you can overdo yep. it. <laughs> yeah, you, you can go too far. <laughs> okay, uh, chapter 17. Uh, yeah, quantum elevation. Quantum this chapter was... 
This is the one where he starts talking about the future a bit more. How we are we are on the path of an exponential growth in consciousness, which yeah, will I, which will lead to us in twenty ten having having our lifespans extended indefinitely, and by twenty twenty eight or whatever we'll be living in space. I got to be honest, man. I was losing it. Like I was losing losing my ability to concentrate in the book at this point. Like my my notes are pretty sparse on this bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> he starts talking. Uh, I think his some of his sentiments yep. in this chapter. He quotes or he cites this guy Alvin Toffler, his theory of development or waves of development. He says the first yeah. wave took millennia. It's this tribal stage. Um. The, the the development between the stages of, say, living in uh, small groups of 20 people to large-scale agricultural feudal societies or civilizations took millennia. Then this next stage of, of developing from feudal agriculturalism to industrial urbanism or market economies took centuries. And then he said it will only take decades after the information explosion to move from industrial society to post-industrial society. What he's saying basically is, I think, that the knowledge we gain at each stage is used to generate more knowledge, and so we are doing that at an exponential rate, if I'm yeah. going to be generous to him. Which, yeah, okay, I'm happy to sure. be generous to sure. him. I'm pretty ungenerous to him so far. Um, yeah, and exploring this idea of like phase transitions between societies, you want to think about there being like fairly hard distinctions between like agricultural, pre-agricultural, industrial, post-industrial civilization. We're living through the information revolution now, I suppose, as we're creating this podcast over the internet at light speed, and <laughs> Jack and mm-hmm. I on opposite sides of the planet. It's then streaming yep. for $15 a month using whatever podcasting platform we're using to give it to our audience. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's transforming the face of uh, how work is done and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. I'd say that, but kind of what, like, he, it's interesting, but he kind of just jacks other people's work, like Asimov and this Toffler guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He then goes on to um, cite, on that note, he says, uh, Dr. Isaac Asimov um, notes in his genetic code that there seems to be a 60-year cycle between the first understanding of a new scientific principle and the transformation of the world by that principle, which I, I would probably take issue with, but I'll not take issue with it. You just say, okay, so there's these things happening. Um, and he, he lists a bunch of like, is a breakthrough in this field and six years later there's things happening changes happening in society um then he kind of contradicts himself and he says well this is actually exponentiating so it's like these these things are happening more quickly and the effects that they're having on society are getting closer and closer together and he draws this chart and it's like look we're going off the going off the charts here um which is which is fine as well um 
And then he says, it is only reasonable to assume that the higher circuits of the nervous system, neurosomatic, holistic awareness, neurogenic, evolutionary vision, metaprogramming, flexibility, are developing to allow us to cope with this deluge of higher information and potential higher coherence. Toffler's third mm -hmm. wave is only the sociological aspect of a mutation that is also biological and, quote, spiritual, unquote. Uh, we are going to live a lot longer than we expected and we are going to get a lot smarter. A whole new reality will emerge from those mutations. So he's kind of, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, Jack, but is he kind of saying that, like, we're getting all this knowledge accruing and compounding and exponentiating, right? And mm. <laughs> our genome through these these circuits have actually, has or is, or kind of both, preparing us to be able to like take on this infinity field of new knowledge is that what he's saying i think that is what he's saying and he's basically <laughs> saying that we already have these capabilities in our genomes to yeah. process this information we're just not using it yet he is literally making the argument for the star child <laughs> yeah just, this guy smoked way too much too much weed and watched way too much sci-fi man <laughs> he was a science fictional why didn't he just stick to science fiction <laughs> and then and then then we get to circuit eight the ultimate circuit the non-local quantum circuit I was well and truly cooked by this point. <laughs> what does this circuit do, basically? We have made a beautiful model of consciousness in terms of brain hardware and software. Now we need to remember again that while the brain can be modelled by a computer, the model is never the whole system. The model maker or metaprogram is bigger than the model or program. What did the non-local quantum circuit do? It, to me, it sounded almost like remote viewing. Like it's just this ability... He, he talks about how energy can't move faster than the speed of light, but I think he was talking about quantum entanglement, how it's been observed that, say, entangled particles will spin in opposite directions instantaneously, more quickly than light, than they... I that's they, what he's referencing. They would no, do if, if whatever information was passing between them to make them spin in opposite directions... We're traveling at the speed of light. They're happening. It's happening faster than that. He says, okay, because it can't be energy, it must be consciousness doing the communicating. Yeah. Or information, which isn't energy, but Pure orders energy, is what is, is communicating. And this information is non-local. This non-local quantum circuit is where you are able to tap into that and it seems like he's saying basically you can just see everywhere in the universe. And so he managed to do this at one point when he was, he basically watched what his son was doing when his son was away in Arizona, 500 miles away. I don't know what 500 miles is in normal measurement, but in normal. a lot of kilometers away. Eight, 800 kilometers, maybe. Something like that. A while away. And. Uh, Mr. Wilson was was watching his son by tapping into the non-local quantum circuit. I think that's what it does. Compared to the other circuits, actually, like, say, faith healing and stuff, remote viewing seems less cool. I was a bit let down by the eighth circuit, especially when, like, 
the preceding circuits, the non-antique circuits before this one, all gave you basically these crazy superpowers. And this one just lets you see stuff, see stuff when you're not there. It's like um one of the uh the stones, the seeing stones. Yeah, yeah like it's cool. Of, it's cool. Rings. It's cool. It just yeah. feels like this should be a lower circuit because yeah, they were getting yeah, yeah. they were getting yeah, wackier yeah. and wackier. I think the this, reason why it's a high the higher circuit is because, and I'm going to be generous. I'm going to extrapolate. I'm going if I were going to do a thesis, I would be expanding on the eighth circuit <laughs> mm. <laughs> because this is this is almost like his justification for panpsychism, essentially, or some sort yeah. of like. Consciousness pervades everything. So how do we have uh, information transfer or action at a distance faster than the speed of light? I don't even know if that's true, but I'm going to take it as true. Uh, how does that happen? Consciousness pervades everything. Non-local information. Okay. If everybody, if the entire human species is able to plug into that simultaneously and like uh, at will then that's, that's a superpower. Like, what could we do? We could, like, astral project and do all this crazy stuff. I don't know. I'm sure that he could probably expand on it to be, like, a super, super cool superpower. But he just kind of made it seem, yeah, as Jack said, like, fairly trivial. Like, he saw his son, like, a while away. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is what um, Ilona talks about a little bit <laughs> in her mm. quantum jumping. It's her ability to, like, go to, like, different parts of space-time with her mind. This is what they're talking about. This non... This, this ability to, like, quantum mind jump. Yeah. Final chapter. Prometheus Rising. He starts this one off by saying that intelligence is the capacity to receive, decode, and transmit information efficiently. Stupidity is blockage of this process at any point. And he says that we need to work towards increasing intelligence and decreasing stupidity because stupidity is not not only not only do you miss out on stuff not only does it carry an opportunity cost that you're not making life extending drugs and, and things like that but it leads to wars and these petty territorial disputes violence so he says we need to get as as intelligent as we can as quickly as we can it does beg the question as to if it's so good, why do we have the information, the genetic information in our genomes already? We're just not accessing it, but <laughs> fine. Okay, I guess we'll go with that. And he starts talking about how, how, do we, how do we reach this point of intelligence, which will allow us to live in effectively a utopia. One way you can get there is LSD. LSD does help you. It makes you smarter. He says one of the least known facts about the LSD research in the 1960s was that the long longest single research project with LSD at Spring Grove Hospital, Maryland, saw an average 10% increase in linear IQ alone, as well as the metaprogramming vistas and neurogenetic awakenings popularized by the outlaw LSD culture and its gurus. So you can take tons of acid and it, it might not be... Everything, but it is pretty good. It will make you smarter. He also, he says that the way to get to this, this state of elevated intelligence will probably be synergistic. So you use yoga, LSD, biofeedback, 
hypnotism, things like that to increase our intelligence. Just take every woo-woo trope that yeah. you've ever heard do of them and all. just do all of them together simultaneously and you'll just you'll ascend up the circuits. Yeah, yeah, basically. He calls it the Intelligence Intensification Project. I, I squared. <laughs> yeah, he says, in summary, intelligence intensification is desirable because there is not a single problem confronting humanity that is not either caused or considerably worsened by the prevailing stupidity, insensitivity of the species. Again, a species which has in its genome the ability to become much more intelligent, to... just not using it for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he and then he's he's got this thing where he talks about what proportion of the species lives on each circuit or is has access to each part of the circuit, and then the book just ends. Yeah, although so I, th- there's one little quote he says. He says, "Yeah, go for the, it." The, the newer the newer circuits, neurosomatic bliss, neurogenic Atman consciousness. Metaprogramming reality games, non-local cosmic awareness must have some function. He's just like, they exist. They've got to have some function. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can do something. We can only, we can only, <laughs> the pictorial evidence is irrefutable, Jack. We can only assume they are preparing us for our new situation in space-time after space colonization, after longevity and immortality after the acceleration factor accelerates even faster. We can only assume that is the only option available to us. Then he says his final words for the book. The future exists first in imagination, then in will, then in reality. That's, uh, that's the eight-circuit model of consciousness used to justify why in 2010 we all started to live forever and how in six years we'll live in space. Millions of people have been in space within six years of recording this podcast. Price. I didn't find this book very convincing. It is quite well written, so I'll give him that. And it 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 doesn't carry the same grouchy old man vibes that Fruit of the Gods carried. Which yeah. is probably its closest analogue in anything that we've read for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it also has that going for it. It's not as chaotic as Wisdom of the Dolphins, which is another piece of woo-woo that we've read for this. So that's good. The previous thing we read was about bone smashing. So he doesn't advocate for you to hit yourself in the face with a hammer. That is also good. However, all of these are very low bars to clear. So I'm not sure... I could say this is a particularly good book. But you didn't do the exercises, Jack. I, d- I did very <laughs> few of the exercises. Maybe maybe it's, that, that might actually be what the exercises are for. They're an indoctrination technique or a brainwashing <laughs> technique. Literally, yeah. literally if you just do them for long enough, if you let this guy live in your head for long enough, you'll start to agree with him. Or maybe ascribe to him more importance than he, he really deserves. My my thoughts on him are basically like he clearly likes science and he probably read a, a lot or at least he mm-hmm. he's a, he at least pretends that he reads a lot. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, and I'm sure for his science fiction writing that's like great. Like it's it's okay, I suppose, to have um, 
I mean, obviously, like some of the best science fiction writers, like Asimov, were actual scientists. So mm-hmm. their science fiction was steeped in like really deep thought. But even if he's not an actual scientist or whatever, you know, like the fact that he has a strong interest in it was probably good for his science fiction writing. And yeah. if he just stuck to that, it, I'm sure it's fruitful, you know, for his writing. And he's a pretty good writer. Um, but then he's just gone out on a limb and just like created this this strange occult mishmash Jungian quantum psychology thing. And he's got a book called Quantum Psychology where he gets into that more. No oh, fuck's sake. Just like, mate, just what are you doing? Give just it a rest. To, give it a stick to sci-fi. Um yeah, but apparently sci-fi is fun to read, so um overall I uh, one of the pros was there's lots of, he references lots of really interesting things there were references that I took down that I was like we could read X, Y, or Z on the podcast but also he referenced some actually like legitimate like science that I was like oh I hadn't heard about this stuff in linguistics or whatever I wonder if that's true maybe I can learn about that so that was that mm-hmm. was nice yeah but that's yeah I would I recommend this book oh no no, no. also he's not anti-semitic <laughs> He's not an anti-Semite. That is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, by the standards of this podcast, if you're not anti-Semitic, that that automatically puts you into an elevated category compared to most of the books we've read. Um, so, yes, you were saying, Jack? Despite the fact that he's not an anti-Semite, I still would not recommend this book. It's not... <laughs> it's just not very good. Yeah, don't read this book. <laughs> it's not worth reading. <laughs> um, what have we got coming up? We've got from the point of view of like, haha, I would look at this book. <laughs> yeah, but it's three hundred um, pages. It's. Uh, are we going to read Gothic Violence next, or are we going to? Yeah, that? we've got something very different lined up. <laughs> Exceedingly different. Yeah. Hopefully, more. We saw our our very few listeners seem to quite enjoy it when we read Harassment Architecture by Mark Ma. So. We're giving his sequel a read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I think I think that's us done. Quantum jumping. That's it. Here. <laughs> Stay <laughs> elevated, <laughs> listeners. Stay elevated, yeah. <laughs>